Welcome back to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson from Proteum Machining, and this week I'm joined by Joe Roganbuck from Cobra Frame Building. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course, man. Thank you for taking the time. So this is the first time you're on the podcast. Let's uh-huh. uh, kind of dive in and kind of your origin story. How did you get into manufacturing? Um, you know, go as far back as you want. And uh, yeah, how'd you get here? Uh, yeah. So... I'm 30 now, and like 10 years ago or 11 years ago, I got into bicycles. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know, I guess it's kind of an earth nerd or hippie or whatever, and I thought it'd be great to not be burning gas all the time. But I really liked bikes, and I got super into them. And then pretty quickly, uh, I, I heard about like artisan bike making, you know, like fabricating a bicycle frame that's made to measure and all this stuff. And there's a whole bunch of people who do this. And I took a class when I was 20. And then I didn't know anything about fabrication. My dad had a, he was a farmer, so they had MIG welders and uh, Alice bandsaw and an old Goodway uh, lathe and some of that stuff. But I, I didn't really know that much about metalworking and certainly didn't know anything about machining. I didn't know what a bridge port was, really. And I took this class and you learn how to make a very old school, sort of like vintage uh, steel bicycle with like 4130 tubing and uh, like silver brazing and, and bronze brazing. And uh, I just love that whole world, you know, making these beautiful bicycles and I love cycling and it was just a good fit of things. And so I spent, you know, after I finished college, which was totally unrelated, I got a sociology degree. It's totally unrelated to making stuff. (laughs) But uh, anyway, after that, I just I just lived as cheap as I could and I worked as little as I could for other people so that I could afford to have some small rinky dink, you know, two, three hundred square foot shop that I would, uh, you know, play with fire and, and make these things. And I always wanted more tools and people make and sell the tooling that you would use to make bikes, but it's, it's pretty expensive when you don't have any money. And, um, anyway, so I would like kind of dink around and make it. I had a, one of those Harbor Freight mini mills that takes the R8 collet. Somebody sold me one of those for 300 bucks. And I used that for a while. You can't do much on that. And then in 2015, there was somebody selling a Bridgeport, on eBay in my city in Syracuse, New York. And uh, <laughs> anyway, I called the guy up, he had his phone number and he had a whole machine shop and I made him a lowball offer and he just accepted it. Uh, I thought he was gonna counter offer. So the, for the first time in my life, I had all these old machines. It was like a 1967 Bridgeport and a Clousing manual lathe and vertical bandsaw, horizontal bandsaw, drill press, disc sander, uh, some other various things. It was 3,500 bucks, which was amazing really good deal on that stuff. And I moved that into my shop and I powered them up to three phase and I started playing. And that's, I think that's around the time that I became aware of Tom Lipton. And I just watched pretty much every video he's ever made. And I always tell people that I think Tom Lipton is like, you know, he's kind of my shop teacher. (laughs) He's sort of my mentor. (laughs) There's a lot of people that I've learned a lot of little things from, but I think Tom really like watching his videos is what taught me the love of the work and uh, I think also design stuff now that I kind of make and design my own tools. Like I pick up lots of details for how to do that from a lot of places. But when Tom would talk about, you know, making a knob and making it decorative, but giving it the flutes for the grip and talking about, you know, using 954 bronze for this nut because it's got a good, you know, sort of wear characteristic and slipperiness. And just the way that he talks about that really helps me be excited to build things and helped inform my judgment about how I did that. And so anyway, I did a lot of manual machining projects for a couple of years. And then 
you know, I kept like trying to make bikes here and there. And, and then Jeff Tiedekin, I sort of knew him through the internet and this would have been like 2017 or something. And I remember I asked him one time, I DM'd him and I'm like, uh, can I give you a phone call sometime and get some career advice from you? And he's like, sure. And then uh, I talked to him and he talked to me for like an hour, which was awesome on the phone. And anyway, I, I asked him like, how do how would I crack into getting like a CNC machining job if I wanted to? Like I'm getting sort of competent with manual machining, but I don't have any work experience. Like who's going to hire me? Never went to trade school. And he gave me some advice that was cool. He said, just like show up at a machine shop. And if they have NDAs and they can't show you stuff, then they won't. But if they can show you stuff, a lot of times they'll give you a tour. And then a lot of times you need an excuse to get out of there because they're just going to bend your ear all day and you need to like have some reason that you can leave. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did that. I sat on that advice for six months. I finally went in this place and I felt really like weird about it, but I was like, yeah, I'll just try it, you know, I'll see if it works. And I was like willing to take a job. And I also was just kind of curious to see the shop, but I, I really wanted a tour before I was asking for a job application. I walked into the lobby and Anyway, I walked into the lobby and I felt super embarrassed, but I was like, can I like get a tour or so? I don't know. And she's like, we don't really do that here. And I'm like, uh, can you give me an application? So I started filling out an application and then that, that led to me getting a job there. The guy, the president of the company after a minute comes out and he's like, oh, I'll show you around. And then he's like, oh, it seems like you would be great here. And I worked there. That was the only machine shop job I ever had is I guess the point of that story. I worked there for nine months. They had like nine Matt Sura's from the 90s and early 2000s, and they had one old uh, Hardinge Conquest 42 lathe from 1990 that has a similar FANUC control to my current lathe. And so it's uh, part of what I like about this machine is it reminds me of that first CNC machine I ever ran. But uh, anyway, yeah, I did that for a while, and it was kind of the wrong fit for me. There was no potential to really learn anything there. They just wanted somebody to like saw material and load parts, and I got tired of that. And uh, and I, I, I walked into the office of the, the owner of the company and I said, you know, like I need some opportunities to like try something. Like, can you let me come in after hours and like, you know, try something or like I would ask my manager if I broke a tool on the Matsura or something, I'd say, oh, sorry, I did this. I loaded another tool in the holder. Like, I don't know how to touch it off. And he would just kind of walk past me and press a bunch of buttons and then walk away again. And I like, it's the easiest thing in the world to touch off a tool, but I didn't know how to do it. And he like would guard that information from me because he was threatened by me or something. And, um, oh, and, man. and it was, uh, the Matsura horizontals, which are sweet. And they had this really goofy way. They didn't program off the center line of the palette. They programmed three different work coordinates if they were going to clock it on 90 degrees and you had three different, you know, orientations to the part. And so mm -hmm. they would set three different H values for the tool. Like it was crazy. They, and their, and their G54, G55, they didn't, they didn't have a Z value. It was an X, Y value. And then they would do the tool length. The H value would be the Z correction. And so if you needed to use it on different work coordinates, they would have like, anyway, it was ridiculous. So when you, when you would break a little eighth inch carbide engraver tool or something, which I did quite a bit, you had to touch it off in three spots. Yeah. Yeah. The, a guy I program for does the same thing. I'm like, man, just get like a manual tool setter or something and stop yeah. setting your tools every single operation. This is it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and they are using, you know, little edge finders that spin up at a thousand RPMs. And it's cool because I had never been around CNCs. So I didn't know, like I did get a lot out of that job, especially the first month I would see 
the workflow and I would see what the machines can do and the cycle times. And I learned, I just saw a lot of stuff that I hadn't seen before. But after about a month or so, it's just like there wasn't anything that new that I was learning. And it, like I would run the lathe all day. And so I would kind of take it upon myself to like figure out how to adjust an offset if I, you know, like if the insert was worn or something. And mm-hmm. I, so I kind of like figured it out. But like they, they just didn't want me to like advance. It was crazy. It was just like you'd think that you would want people who could solve their own problems. So you didn't need to babysit, but. Um, yeah, I think there's far too many <laughs> shops that are like that out there, unfortunately. Yeah, and some of the parts were kind of cool, but anyway, uh, it was you know it was a small machine shop. I was like one of like four people there, and um, so I did that for a while, and I just got fed up with that, and I wanted to do more, and I had been used to spending my entire twenties living like a super dirt bag, as in Syracuse, <laughs> New York, and it's a cheap you know, city and, and it's not New York city, it's central New York. It's everybody gets confused about that. You say New York and they think you're talking about the city, but it's, it's very cheap to live there. And then I had it really cheap cause I was always sniffing out deals and I was used to living on nothing. So to be working full time and making sort of an honest wage, uh, I had to like a fair amount of money saved up after nine months. And I, uh, I quit that job. I en- enrolled in the Saunders machine works classes that, that they were offering and, uh, and that was really cool. And I did that for like a whole week. And then I came back and I just, I had the CNC fever. I needed my own machine. I had this shop that I had been renting cheap always to do fabrication in for bikes. And I was like, I think I could squeeze a small CNC in here. And so I bought one and uh, I put it in my shop. Wow. And then, and then I figured it would take me like six months, you know, to like figure out how to make anything worth a damn. But it was like, what took a little while was like I had to wire it up which I did myself. I had to move it. That was real complicated. I had to figure out coolant. I had to figure out, you know, tool holders and, and vices and work offsets and stuff. But once I did all those things in the post-processor and the floppy disk for Fusion, but once I did those things, it was like, <laughs> oh. And then like within a week or something, I had some uh, some parts that I started to sell and I just never went back to work. I always figured when I quit the job, I figured, um, you know, I don't have that much money and I'm going to blow it real fast if I buy a machine, but like I'll buy an old cheap machine. It was $7,000 for this old machine. Uh, it was a 1996 Bridgeport torque cut 22. Probably cost oh, wow. me $10,000 by the time I, I had moved it and I had tool holders and stuff and, and the wiring and all that. And which is cheap, uh, certainly to get a machine with a tool changer going in your shop. But anyway, Uh, I just figured I I would like use this stint where I didn't have a job. I was going to like increase my skill set so that I knew how to set up and program the machines at least a little bit. And then I would just re-enter the job market and try and find a better machining job. And I just never had to because like immediately I started to sell stuff that people were into and buying and um, I didn't want to go back to work. And so I just kept it cheap and I was growing it. And so that's like the last nearly three years now. I think it was April of, you know, almost three years ago that I got that machine. Wow. That's awesome. I I had no idea that you just kind of jumped in with both feet at the very (laughs) beginning of your business. I'd assume that you were, you know, kind of doing that on the side CNC wise for a long time before you did. No, I didn't. I mean, I had done a lot of manual machining over the years. I just loved that so much. And like, it was like kind of my whole world. I think once I got the, the machines, I really, that kind of took over. Like I still love bikes um, and I like the idea of making them, but I think since I got my hands on machining in about 2015, it was like, that was my, my first love at that point. And so when you, 
then finally get your hands on CNC and with Fusion 360 software being so easy, it's just like it doesn't take that long for those skills to translate uh, into something where. And so I always think like when I see somebody who's pretty good with manual machining, I'm like, you get them on a CNC and like two weeks later, they're going to be really good. That's that's my take. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's it's a lot easier to teach the computer side of it to a lot of people than it is the, you know, the feel and the inherent knowledge of like cutting tool, tool paths and, and cutting forces and all of that stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like if you just wanted to get going as fast as you could and you didn't have any experience, I didn't learn CNC first, but I feel like that's probably not a bad way to learn. But that's just a guess because, you know, I didn't do it that way. So maybe I'm taking for granted how long it took to understand all the stuff that I slowly learned through manual machining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to skin that cat to, you know, get to the final destination of like being a CNC machinist. Um, I I think that there are definitely quicker ways to get there, but that don't always lead to the same deep understanding. Like I, I see a lot of people... And I, and I don't know your experience with it, but I see a lot of people skipping over like learning G code itself yeah. and just jumping into cam. And then when it comes down to like editing their post processor or having to hand edit something that their post processor isn't doing right or something that they want to try out, they are lost or really, yeah. you know, scared to edit that code because they see it as this master code. Whereas, you know, a lot of people who know G code, they're like, oh, well, it's just another language. Like, I want to mm-hmm. speak this way instead of this way. Yeah. When I had that job, I wanted so badly. I was really, I didn't, I almost didn't care about the paycheck. I just wanted to learn. And they, you know, it was the opposite for them. But I remember I had gone online and, you know, printed out a list of all the common GNM codes. And I had that at the machine and it'd be like a three minute cycle on the Matsura or whatever. And I'd just be like, you know, it's like a circa 2000 FANUC control or something, but like the code is, is screaming past or, or sometimes it's going slow. And I'm just like, uh, m06 or something and i'm like which what is that and you know i'm like looking back and forth and trying to just memorize them i made i got a flashcard app and i put in all the gnm codes because and in hindsight it's like i didn't need to i don't think that's the starting place that makes the most sense if you have another way but like i didn't have another way that was where i was at and they were guarding all the information so i was like well this is one thing i can work on and then you know the code will make more sense to me if i if i can kind of read it and yeah it's not a yeah, bad idea to do flashcards. No, not at all. Well, that, that's crazy that they didn't <laughs> see that and encourage that. Like we had yeah. at the first shop I worked at, we had this guy, Victor, who did not speak English very well, was straight from Mexico, would very often go back over the border to visit his family. And he would do the same thing. He would like call me over and be like, what does this mean? What are you doing here? And I was like, this is the best person to run my programs because he actually cares. Like why? Yeah. That's insane to me that they would just be like, oh, we, we want to guard all our secrets from Joe. He can't learn yeah. anything. You know, what's crazy is one day the shop manager, he was like, there was about 20 people in this company. It was more sheet metal than it was machining. So the machining was kind of a sideline. And the manager uh, of the machine shop was probably the most driven person at the entire company other than possibly me. But he had been there 17 years. And I think he was kind of maybe threatened by me or whatever it is. But anyway, he went he had to do something the one day and he was gone and uh, something happened. It was like a, it was a pallet changer, horizontal Matsura. And the two other guys in the machine shop who had been there for like 15 years, the two of them, the collectively, they had been there for 15 years and none of us could figure out how to do a pallet change 
like a M65 or whatever it was, or maybe it was, yeah, it's probably a sub program or something. But anyway, uh, none of us knew how to do a palette change so that we could touch off a tool. They knew how to touch off a tool, but we had to touch it off on the other palette and like nobody could figure out how to just in MDI get it to change the palettes. And so like that machine sat for hours while we waited for him to get back and I had to like sweep up and find other things to do. And it, it's just insane that that kind of thing can happen in those. I mean, I don't know if that place is still open or not, but like I feel like the days are numbered when that's sort of the way that you operate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it totally because you are encouraging the aging out of your qualified staff. Yeah. And you're not bringing them up. And I'm like, we're seeing that, I think, globally and workforce wide wide right now. Like we've encouraged people to like go to school and blue collar is bad for so long that like I know here um, we've got Raytheon locally and they're like scared of the next maybe five or 10 years because all of their qualified machinists are aging out and like there's not a whole lot of people going to you know, college for this or, or starting to work in shops or anything like that. And so they're, they're, they're seriously worried about that. Like the, I've heard that the union here is like, they've reached out to our local community college to try to like boost that program and, and have it tailored more to like the kind of people that they need. And um, I, I think that we're going to in the next five or 10 years, really start to see big gaps in uh, the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. So, which- Sorry for people. Oh no, I was gonna say for people that don't know what you build. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's it's frame building. So what parts do you make? What what's what's your whole business about? Um, for anybody who doesn't follow you, that yeah. even though they definitely should. So go over to Joe's <laughs> Instagram and follow him. Um. Yeah. So <clears throat> there are some players in this industry who make the tooling for the artisan bike builder, and I I think that it is. Um, if you're not familiar with this small like handmade bicycle world. It tends to be uh, like the idea for a lot of people is that they it's a romantic idea to have like a one person shop. You know, it's like maybe it's in your garage or you have a pole barn or, or you rent a space somewhere. But it's like your personal shop and you are personally the brand and you make this bespoke. It's like the hand tailored suit. You know, it's like this you make this bike for somebody and they're going to love it. It's going to fit them so well. It's going to ride great. It's going to have the paint they want, the colors they want. And they need tools to do that. And some people will make all their own tools and some people will buy them. And so anyway, there have always been people that would sell you these tools and I was too cheap to buy them. And so I, as I made more and more of them myself, I just really loved that. And and then I wanted to get into CNC and I, that's where I started is in that niche. But it's been good to me. And that's kind of where I'm, that's completely where I'm at. I don't do any other work. I don't do job shop work. I don't do any other projects. It's I just make my own product line. So I have a tube bender for uh, bending, you know, thin wall, chromoly and titanium and people even bend aluminum with it. Uh, So that's really cool. It's kind of a unique design that is driven by a lead screw. So a lot of benders are manual and you bolt it to something heavy and then you're reefing on a lever and that gets tough when you get into larger diameter tubes. And so mine, all the forces contained within the tool by the lead screw. And so you could you could clamp it to a card table or something flimsy and it doesn't matter because all the force is contained within the tool. And so it's this small little package. You could just kind of put it on a rubber hook on the wall when you weren't using it or something. It's pretty slick. Whereas like if you're used to like a diacro manual bender or a JD squared bender or something, those like tend to eat a lot more floor space and there's like different pros and cons. But anyway, I think mine is pretty cool. So I, I make that tube bender. That's been the big ticket item. And there's a whole bunch of interchangeable dies. I have a whole list of cabinet now that's pretty much full of the dies and stuff for that. It's a lot and tied up in inventory, but you need a couple of each, at least two or three. And there's like, you know, there's like 30 different bending dies. 
and then I, and then I have some smaller tools. And uh, the one of them is just a it's a little aluminum clamp that it's very simple, but it just allows you to hold the the cable guides and the different uh, they call them brazons in the bike world because you would in the old school you know you would braze them with like a silver silver brazing or bronze brazing. But you braze them on and so like little cable guides and little pieces of steel and titanium or you could weld them on now. And so I call those braze on clamps, but they're just like a little clamp that has a particular geometry that works pretty good and gives you good access with your torch so that you can get that work done. I tend to sell those in a three pack. And then I have some mitering tools. So if you were to try and make a cut in um, thin wall tubing, and especially if it's like not round, it can be tough to hold that tubing. And so a lot of people will get, you know, just like an old milling machine, like a Bridgeport or horizontal mill or something. And they'll use a, a hole saw, actually like a high speed steel or a, a, sorry, a bimetal hold, hole saw like a plumber uses. But you just mount it to a heavy arbor and you can make a nice cut through this thin tubing uh, better than you would, might, may, might assume. But you need a way to hold the tube. And so you can use tube blocks if your tubes are round. But it, what if they're tapered or what if they're not round? And so uh, I make some tools that allow you to hold that tubing and then just hold this tool in like a milling vise, like a curt vise or something. And so uh, I sell a fair amount of those too. And it's just like, and, th and then I have a podcast and I have a YouTube channel. And I'm just trying to like be a part of that whole ecosystem because I, I love the whole frame building world. And it's the only thing that I'm probably qualified to design tools for if I even am. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I do. And, and then I, you know, have the whole machine shop to support that. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at your website right now. I love your, uh, product names too, like miter daddy and tube bender. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah. It's a fun world. Cause I think, I think the, th there's different people in it, of course, but I think this sort of customer profile is, it's like a starving artist. It's like somebody who just wants to do what they love and they don't take it any more seriously than they need to a lot of times. Or if they take it seriously, it's in like the craft. It's not in the attitude and the professional like suit and tie sort of way. And so people seem to appreciate, you know, having a little bit of fun with it and send it sort of fun naming. And, you know, if you're like uh, Fifth Axis or Orange Vice or something like I don't know that you get away with the kookier names and the, the silliness or something. Maybe you would. But um, I think the little niche that I'm in is a lot of fun. That's awesome. I'm also looking at your uh, shop tour tab. You got to update that thing. Yeah, no, that's old. I <laughs> <laughs> still have the torque cut, still have the bridge port. Yeah, no, I don't have any of that stuff now. And it's 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 good and bad. But I feel like I think something that's allowed me to be as successful as I've been with my business the last couple of years is that I know that for me, the number one goal right now is to build my business to maturity so that I don't have to go and get a job for someone else. And so I'm like triaging all these things that I'd like to do. I would really like to build out my current space so that it's nice. I would really like um, to have better work-life balance eventually. I would really like to make the website better and automate these things. But it's like there is no one thing that is even close to as important to me as releasing this next product that I'm on the cusp of releasing this uh, frame building, frame welding fixture that I've been working on for a long time. And so it's it's just hard because it's like every other thing is like so much less important to me. And it's kind of hard to be that tough with yourself about all these things. And so the website does need to get updated. It wouldn't take me that long to throw on some other pictures. So I should do that. But it's just <laughs> no, like I'm every no, um. but like every little thing, it's like it's hard to live your life when you're so aware that like there is one goal that is head and shoulders more important than every other thing. 
it's like I need to grow into maturity to where, and I'm trying to hire somebody now and, and other steps too, but like I need to grow into a level where I can breathe and I can do the things that are not only the, the most important, but that I also have the capacity to do the 10 things below that too. Totally. So let, let's, you, you briefly mentioned them. Let's talk about two big decisions you made in the last couple of years. One, buying the Haas and going from the, you know, old torque cut to that. And then also you just recently moved. Um, yeah. Not fully across the country, but, you know, states. So yep. let, let's kind of talk through those. Like, how did you, I guess, first, how, how did you decide to jump into the Haas? What, what, what was part of the decision making process? And then, uh, yeah, we can jump into, you know, moving to where you are now. Yeah, for sure. So with the Haas, I mean, with my first machine, uh, I'll talk about that for a minute because that was a sweet machine. And and also I will say that when you're looking at older machines as a first machine or when you're looking at first machines in general, I'm not a fan of like the Tormox and stuff. I think those are really good for like a school or something, but they just, I don't think they're good for production. They don't have any horsepower and like chip management would be a nightmare and they're really slow and I'm just not a fan of them for, I feel like the learning curve with CNC is pretty short. And then you're like, now what? <laughs> and right. so if you get an old industrial machine, yeah, you're probably going to be fixing on it every once and again, but you can at least like crank some shit out. You know, you can really get some work done on an old machine that has a tool changer and an enclosure. And so I'm really glad that the first machine I got was at least as capable as it was. Uh, I think I saw there's a question from Thomas Hosford. He was really helpful to me over the years. Uh, I talked to him when I still had that other job. He was trying to sell one of his torque cut machines because he had two of those. And I didn't actually buy one of his, but I did end up buying another one of that model from somewhere in Connecticut, somebody on Craigslist. And uh, it was a sweet machine. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it had a tool changer and an enclosure, and uh, you could actually load a pretty big program into me memory for 1996. It was a 256K. It didn't. Oh, wow. It didn't hold or it didn't read code very quickly. So if you wanted to do like a ball mill chamfer, like surfacing thing, you know, and you turn smoothing way up, it still would just trip over the code or, you know, 2D adaptive. I didn't do a whole lot of that unless I couldn't find another way to to get the part machined. But anyway, it was a sweet machine. Uh, it just the issue was that the spindle was like miserably, miserably loud. I've never heard a machine so loud. And then uh it just kept breaking on me. The tool changer and different things would have faults. And then you lose a couple of days trying to like, you know, figure out how to fix it. And I felt like I was at a point where if I just had a new reliable, faster machine, I'd be able to cover more ground. And so I looked at, I, I never really wanted a Haas. I just felt like they weren't that cool, but uh, I guess they won me over because I really appreciate the way that they put all the information front and center. Like, um, you know, if you want to, and it's true still, like if I want to learn about how to do, um, I was doing, I think G10 where you update the work offset within the program can be really useful for some probing stuff. And I mean, it's like a Google search and like two minutes later you have your answer and you're off and running. Uh, it's like that with everything. You know, if you want to learn about something, they have YouTube videos on most of the stuff or the, the it's just like, and, and also like before you buy it, you know, like once you own it and you have the manual, then you can start to really get to know it. But I feel like when you have never, I never worked at a shop that had any machines other than those old Matsuras and stuff. So like, I didn't really know that much about these different machines, but when you're shopping for a Haas, it's like, you can see pretty much what it does because everybody has one and there's like a million YouTube videos. And so uh, it's just, it made it a lot easier to approach it. And then the pricing is transparent and the pricing was like way too good. You know, they're always running. <laughs> I got yeah. it. Was you pay full price, you're a sucker. That's for sure. 
and even like if you did pay full price, it's still like pretty reasonable prices. But then it's just, you know, yeah, I I saw I never paid that much attention to the deals. I was just aware that they had some. And then I went to buy it and I, it was like 20 percent off if it was 15 percent off. But if you added a rotary, then it was 20 percent off of everything. So like the cost bump to add the rotary was like five grand or something. And I was like, well, this is a no brainer. And yeah, definitely was uh, best decision ever to get a fourth on this. But yeah, so I wanted a machine. I was going to get a VF2 probably because I had such a tiny, tiny shop. It was like 400 square feet. And I didn't think I needed a big one. My, my old machine had 22 inches on X, which was a little small, but I figured a VF2 would be plenty, which is 30 inches on X. And, and then I was looking at it and I was like, well, you know, maybe you know, maybe if I get a slightly bigger machine, the footprint is not that much bigger. So I started looking at a VF3 and I asked my sales guy about it. And then he said, you know, the VF4 is exactly the same size as the VF3. It's just got a bigger table, but like the sheet metal and the casting and the, the footprint is the same. And I was like, well, then why the hell would anybody ever buy a VF3? There's no reason. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and I still mostly feel that way. So I bought a VF4, uh, not because I need needed it, but I just thought, you know, it's not a whole lot more money to get it. And then it allows you to keep more set up at once and allows you to put more parts in at once. And that has been, I'm really glad that I got that because I have two vices on the left. I have a Pearson palette in the middle, which at this point I hardly use, but I think I'm going to keep it because it's really useful for some stuff. And then on the right, I got my rotary with a, with a fifth axis rock lock base. And because they're always all set up, every part I make, I can get set up like pretty damn quick. And that's a huge deal to me because I do such a high mix of things. I have like already like 60 or with the frame fixture, it's going to be like a hundred different parts that I make. And you know, you're, you can't afford to run like three years quantity of those at once. So you're, you're setting up and rerunning stuff every couple months. So that means like every couple days you need to, you know, do a setup on these things, if not more often. And it's just the setups kill. So if I can keep everything set up is amazing. Yeah, you've been putting a lot of effort in and we've talked a lot off air about, you know, your fifth axis on the fourth and and ways to kind of make all these things quicker and faster and all that stuff. And it's it's really cool to see. I feel like there are a lot of people out there that don't put the time and effort into quick setups that you do. And it's it's always nice when I see a, a message from you. I'm like, oh, man, like I'm going to dive into something new or something enjoyable yeah. every time we talk. So, yeah, um, I, I feel cool. like what I'm trying to do is not just machining or something. I feel like what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a business system that works that like I can continually focus on the new, I think uh, on the BOM podcast, John Grimsmo was saying that he wanted to get to a point where he works on things that are new or that are broken. And yeah, uh, yeah I, like I love that. that. Too. <laughs> and so it's like, as long as I'm, you know, setting up work stops and, and probe, you know, manually jogging the probe in and setting up parallels and getting ready to run the next parts. And it takes, you know, setting all the tools. Like I have a standard tool library now, which has been life changing. And anyway, like as long as you're doing setups all the time on these repeat parts that, you know, are coming up again later, it's just like, then you're, you're not doing that. And I guess you could hire somebody to do that, but you know, that setup work is fairly skilled work. So you got to hire somebody you can really trust and, and you got to pay them right. And uh, you know, I just, I would like to minimize that as much as possible so that whether it's just me or me and somebody else that like, we can always be focusing on like, you know, fixing new stuff. Like I'm, I'm trying to hire somebody. I want them not just to do the work. I want them to also help me build the system. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, so before we get to your your new hire, which uh, we de I definitely want to talk about, yeah, 
let's talk about your move to Grand Rapids. Yeah, for sure. And I guess before we leave the Haas, I'm trying to think if there's any other things that I should talk about that. I wanted to talk to you some about the 30 taper versus 40 taper thing, which we can do later, I guess. But that's always been interesting to me, like the super, super fast machine or like a bigger machine. Uh, I think that's an interesting debate. And and you and I, I'm, I'm curious to talk about that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and then so when you went to Saunders, because uh, Molly No asked both about yeah. your Haas and about the Saunders course, did he have Haas at that time or was it all Tormach? No, he, well, I didn't use them really. He had just gotten the VF2 SS, which I think was his second Haas, and he had the VM3 before that. But so when I went there, we did, uh, it was like two days in a computer lab with Fusion. And uh, the, you know, we didn't really see John the whole time. Uh, he has uh, uh, Kevin Ellingson flies in from Fargo or somewhere and teaches oh, yeah. that class. He's, he's mech, what, mech advantage on yeah me- mechanical advantage mech advantage, and he is yeah. a great he's a great teacher. I think he offers like one on one stuff. So like if you need to learn about all that stuff related to CAD and CAM, a uh, really good person to reach out to or take a class with him or whatever. Um, I recommend that. We didn't see John much at all the whole time. I think he was in Australia or something for most of it. But anyway, so like two days in the class with the computer lab, I always struggled to figure out how to get over the learning curve with Fusion. And then within like an hour and a half sitting in the computer lab, I was like, oh, (laughs) I get it now. And it just kind (laughs) of clicked. And, you know, you get hung up on some little thing because it's kind of complicated in the beginning. You got to like, I don't know. It's just like, what the hell is the difference between a body and a component? I don't get it. Mm hmm. And anyway, then you have somebody looking over your shoulder and they're like, oh, just do this. Like it's blah, blah, blah. And then and then you're on to the next thing. And so that really helped. And we did it was two days in the computer lab with CAD. And then it was three days with the Tormach making like a little speed handle for a Kurt Weiss and some other little project. And I was like, yeah, this is I can't believe they wouldn't teach me how to touch off tools. This is so easy. You know, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And then I did a two-day fixture in class, which, you know, I don't know. That was whatever. Uh, they, they did a fine job with that. I think the strength of the Saunders offerings, at least at that point, was all the computer stuff. Those guys, uh, uh, Kevin and John, and, like, I think they're really – they embrace the technology, and they're good at, you know, computers and teaching that sort of thing. And so uh, I really like that. From all the years of, like, dinking around with manual machining and stuff, I felt like I had a pretty good hold on, like – <laughs> on fixturing. Uh, <laughs> so they were showing us like mighty bike clamps and stuff, which is like, it's cool. Some of that stuff I hadn't seen, I guess, but anyway, uh, yeah, it was a cool class. I learned a lot. I would recommend it to people. It's really not that much money for what it is. Uh, it can really turbocharge your, your, your growth into that world. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. But, uh, the space that I'm in to return to that is, uh, I, I had been in a couple different shops in, well, I'm from Michigan and I went to college in Michigan and then I moved to Syracuse, New York when I was 23, I was dating somebody there. And then I just been there the last like seven and a half years. And it's, it's a fine place, but I didn't really have a reason to be there. I wasn't like super in love with the climate or the location and it didn't support industry that well. It's like kind of hard to get stuff anodized. Like in Syracuse, there's, there's Anoplate, which is this massive, massive, massive company. And they sort of like, I haven't seen Pretty Woman, but I think they kind of pretty womaned me when I went in there and tried to get some work done. They quoted me like $850. And I I was like, oh, God, I guess that's just what it costs. Man, this is expensive. Oh. And then I, I in desperation, I was uh, frustrated with them. I didn't know like how to make a PO or anything. I just, I'm so new to this whole, you know, I never ran a business. I don't know what a purchase order is. 
And so they wanted me to make them a purchase order. And that was the straw that broke the, the camel's back. And I was like, you know what? I'm just taking my parts. I'm going to pick them up and I'm going to figure out some other place to anodize them. Because <laughs> they were being <laughs> jerks about the PO thing, like, you know, that I didn't, they're all snobby. And and then I, I got the next city over, Rochester, New York, like 90 miles over. I got them to give me a quote and it was $130 and they did great work. And so for the next, you know, two years or whatever, I was just taking my parts uh, to this and it, I would ship the small orders and I would drive the big ones. And anyway, being in Syracuse was, was great in a lot of ways, but they're just, the support for industry was not so good. Like trying to get sawn, like pre-cut material was really hard there. Even just trying to get material was, I didn't think the local material suppliers were very good. They didn't ever give me good prices or they weren't that easy to deal with and the anodizing sucked. And so anyway, my shop was way too small. It was like 400 square feet and it was like half of that square footage was my VF4. And then I got a CNC lathe and like, it's just ridiculous how tight I had that shop parked, uh, uh, packed. And yeah. so I needed a different shop space. I didn't want to stay in that city. I had no reason to stay there at that point. So I was looking to maybe move out West or something would have been cool but I didn't know where exactly and it's expensive. And then I got family in Michigan and I figured, you know, if I moved back to Michigan it would be cool. So I found this ridiculously nice warehouse space for rent in uh, Jenison, Michigan, which is like in the burbs of Grand Rapids. And so I moved in here and it's been awesome. Uh, it's really cool shop space. I've never seen a warehouse space. That's like quite this nice. It's, it's air conditioned. There's a power roll up door. There's heat. Of course, there's, uh, like brick everywhere. So it looks nice. And the, the, the led lights in the ceiling and there's a, uh, there's a bathroom with a shower. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I have big shop envy, like the pictures you've posted of it. It really is like a gorgeous space. Um, much more like what I would expect some kind of fancy clothes brand to like yeah. set up in more than a, a shop. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. The guys in the next unit over is like a contractor or something, and they use it as like a showroom for their model kitchens and offices for their, you know, people. And, uh, you know, they don't do any industrial stuff in there, but it, it looks great. And there are different people in the different, there's eight units here. So if anybody cool wants to wants to come and uh, move, move in next door and be my neighbor and start another machine shop, then I'll, I'll let you know when there's a, a vacancy. But it's it's like a 1450 a month for 1500 square feet, and it's nice. And the only complaint I have is that it's in the suburbs of of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it's not, you know, it's, it's like a 20-minute drive from the cool part of town where I live, but whatever. Anyway. That's still, yeah. I mean, that's a great price and, and really not too bad of a location it sounds like yeah and it's i was very very clear with them that i like i could not afford to make the mistake of moving in and then find out that they didn't really have three phase because they had told me they had three phase and at some point they said that they had 200 amps and so i i before i signed the lease i had the guy like their electrician came over and they confirmed it is 208 volt three phase and i'm like okay and then I get here and I see that it's 100 amps. And then I referred to my email where I made sure to get it in writing. And I guess he had confirmed that it was 208 volts of three phase. And he didn't at that point say that it was 200 amps. So I guess that's my fault for not being careful. 100 amps, from what I can tell from all the people I've talked to, should be plenty for all the stuff that I want to do in here. I think if you packed it full of machines and you ran, you know, really hard, then like, yeah, you could, you could run out of power. But I don't think that's going to happen. I feel like... Uh, I feel like I'm pretty safe here for a while. Eventually I'll, I'll probably, you know, buy my own space, like a, like a 
pole barn or something on my own property or who knows, but this should be good for quite a while. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I know, I know before you moved, like you had asked on the podcast a few times and we talked a few times over DM about shop space because you were, like you said, bursting at the seams at your old shop. So yeah, I think I had said to you something like, could you guys talk about space sometime? That'd be interesting. And you're like, I don't know what to say about it. Like what's to say about it. And I said, you know, if I was doing a podcast about machining, I feel like it'd be half about space. (laughs) Right. Cause it's like, I mean, at that point I was feeling like I was feeling especially squished and, and frustrated about it, but it really is. And somebody was asking that recently to you guys, but like, it's a, it's hard to find the smaller size spaces and it's hard to commit to a lot at first when you're trying to like strike out and get going. So unless you have your own garage or something or your own pole barn, it's really hard. And I think once you have it, you kind of forget about the crisis of it. But like when you're looking it, it's so hard to find anything decent. And this one is amazing because it's year to year. Uh, you only need to sign for one year, but like a lot of places, they want you to sign for three or five years. And it's just, it's a nightmare uh, to think about that sort of yeah. commitment when you're just getting started and all you need is some thick concrete and, and some three phase, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that at the time, well, I mean, still, I didn't have much of a opinion on it because like we just lucked into the place we had, like we bought a machine before we had space and just kind of had to find a place. And like yeah. this one was on Craigslist and it had what we needed. It's not ideal, but it's cheap. And yeah. you know, it was like, I, I don't know what to tell you besides like, <laughs> good luck. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and like what you, it sounds like you have a great deal. Cause like I've looked locally and the next space we looked at was, I want to say it was 15 or 1600 square feet. And it was like almost two grand a month. And it didn't yeah. have AC. It was all swamp cooled still. And I mean, it had an AC like front office. Um, like I think half of that was was offices in the front or a third of that. But yeah, it sounds like you got a, a really smoking deal. So that's that's great. Yeah, it's awesome. And and I didn't, you know, I think we tend to be practical people, you know, like makers and machinists and whatever. And so I would never go shopping for a place with it being nice as a high priority. Like, oh, it's got to be nice. And this place is nice. And anyway, when I posted pictures to my Instagram of like, I'm moving, here's what the new shop looks like. People just saw it and they like their eyes lit up and they're like, oh my God. And like, everybody's like jealous of me or happy for me or some combination of the two. And I sold a lot of stuff that week. And I don't know exactly what that lesson is, but I think... um, I mean, I'm not saying that I want to lean into this and this is going to, but whatever. But it's like when you project success, and I think that's what people were seeing was that like I was apparently successful and like whatever, it means something to people. They, they, they like, it gives them an affinity for you that they want some of what you have or they like, oh, this person's successful. Let me like be friends with or do business with this person who's, I don't, it's weird, but it's not, I guess it's not all bad. I just like, I don't want that to guide my I don't want that to be the quest that I'm on is to make people jealous of me or something but it serves a little bit of utility to like to you know like versus like when I was in this dark cramped little shop like nobody ever 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 came and visited me and now people want to come all the time and I'm like yeah bring your mask whatever like I'll show you around the shop and um maybe that's geography but yeah I don't know it's 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 different it's a whole different level when you have a shop that looks nice and and just having space is so powerful. Like to be able to work on something without having to move 10 other things out of the way first is so valuable. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, completely. I mean, it, I guess it makes sense. You know, like you, you want to go over to your friends that have the nice house because it's a nice house and like, yeah. it's the same kind of thing with a shop. You're like, Oh, it's a, a good looking shop and I want to go check it out. So yeah, it's the unfortunate reality of, uh, being human, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's weird. There's some deep psychological lesson there that like, I think in business, especially like if you sell a product directly to your customer, you know, like I do, I think it's important to like to have a certain level of confidence and a certain level of success or something or perceived success. Because like, you know, it's like you're you're not just buying the product. It's like you're buying a little bit of like that person's aura or something or I don't know exactly. But anyway, it's like, you know, it's to to feel like um, you get all the, the good ideas that this person put into their product. It's coming from this person who also knows how to like succeed or something. It's, I don't know. It's this weird, it's this weird little nugget in there somewhere about business. Oh yeah. Well, and, and I think that you do a great job of putting your face on your social media and stuff. Like I, I know that I went to the M hub talk that both Grimsmo and Saunders um, and Pearson did at like, two IMTSs ago and like one big lesson I learned from all of their speeches was like especially Grimsmo like nobody gave a shit about his brand until he turned the camera around and like it, it was a person that they wanted to like you said be friends with or do business with or buy a part of you know that kind of thing yeah um, and, and you do a great job of that on your stories and stuff like I always listen to your stuff while I'm at work and I'm like oh man I want to see what you know Joe's getting up to today like what what problems is he facing or whatever and so it's it's a really big thing in social media is like you know your work might be the best in the world but if they don't have a face to connect to they just won't care yeah there was so i do a podcast uh and i try to do it every week and i've been bad the last six months but anyway um i interview people who do bike frame building or people who are in the bike industry and i've gotten to do some really kind of like titans of industry it's it makes me feel really proud of that and one of my favorite uh interviews that i ever did was with ross schaefer and so he started salsa cycles in 1983 and he ran it until 1997 and then he sold it so a lot of people would be aware of salsa cycles but anyway uh, he built that company which is cool and he's just the coolest guy he's in like northern california and he has a an old matsura 510 from the 80s in his garage and uh, he said I inspired him to get a, a VF2, so <laughs> or I was part of inspiring him. But anyway, he's getting a new VF2. He makes now he makes pedal steel guitars, which is the coolest thing in the world, uh, like a really beautiful instrument, and he makes like the nicest ones on the planet. Uh, but anyway, when I had him on my podcast, he was talking about um, with something he learned in the bike industry. He's like, he's like, you you want people to want some of what you have, you know, like you want. I don't know. It's it's, I feel like there's a lot of wisdom to that one little thing. You want people to want some of what you have. It's like if you have this brand that's like fun and it's like cool and, you know, like we adventure or we do whatever it is that we do that the brand is about, like you want it to be something that like when people are buying the product, they're also buying some of the lifestyle or something. Yeah, I, no, I completely agree. I see that with some of the bike builders who do it well. It's like they'll post pictures of the gorgeous bikes that they're selling but it's like, don't, don't be fooled. It's not just the bike. It's like, it's also like the beautiful Western landscape behind the bike. Like it's like, it implies that you're not just buying the bike, you're buying your, your like lift ticket or something so that you can live that life of being like, you know, out in the mountains and like riding your bike all the time. And it's like, don't fool yourself. You're buying a bike, but 
but yeah, it's like, it's part of that, you know, you're selling people more than just the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a lifestyle brand, I guess. Yeah, sort of. It's like the equipment that helps you live the life that you aspire to live. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, so sharp right turn. Let's also yep. talk about your lathe. We had a few questions about that as well. Split 141 asked if you liked your lathe, lathe and if you had to buy another one, what would you buy? Um, Easton asked, you know, how, how, how are you becoming a lathe guy and how, how much better they are than Mills? Um, let's kind of go down <laughs> that, that route. Uh, what lathe do you have? What inspired you to get it? And then uh, where are you taking it? Yeah. So um, let me just say this. I crashed my lathe uh, the other day. I didn't post about that, but um, I think it's going to be fine. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was kind of funny that I did that. I, I, I intentionally set, I have a, a system where I keep the three jaw chuck on always and the face of the chuck is Z zero. And so no matter what part I run, like I don't need to set the work offset. And I was rerunning an old template infusion and uh, I had my my hand on the knob for the speed override, and I just wasn't quick enough. So. <laughs> oh no! So I realigned the turret the other day. I think I got that dialed in, and then um, I need to see. I need to cut something and measure for taper to see if the spindle or if yeah, if the if the headstock got twisted out of alignment. And I think I understand how to realign that if I have to. But um, it it wasn't a terrible terrible crash. But anyway, um, definitely knocked the uh, the turret out of position. So yikes. Yeah, that's it comes with the territory. I'm surprised that in the last couple of years I've had as little crashes and stuff as I've had. It's been pretty good, actually. But the machine I have, it's a 1996, again, same year as my old mill was, 1996 Clousing Storm 100A. And so it's got a 42 millimeter through bore. I have a like a five and a half inch three jaw chuck, and I also have a 16C collet chuck. And if anybody wants a A25 16C collet chuck and a bunch of 16C collets, hit me up. I might be willing to sell that. I don't use it. But anyway, it's a sweet lathe. Um, I really do like it. It's got a, a Fanuc OTC control or the OT control. Mm -hmm. And it's so basic. Uh, it does not have work shifts. And it has all these weird, like it doesn't have a bunch of the can cycles and like G92 is some other number. And I had to do a bunch of post-processor edits to get the thing to even run. But now it's, it's, it's awesome. Like the cool thing about these old Fanuc machines is that like they're so unuser friendly and it takes you forever to figure out the most basic stuff. But then once you do, there's like nothing to it. There's like, there's like three screens and like, you know, you load the program and you hit start and it goes. And like, there's just, once you learn how to do four things, like that's all you ever need to know. And God help you if you need to troubleshoot a problem, but like, <laughs> it's just so basic like there's there's not much going on there um yeah totally. my issue with that machine is just that the work that i do i should be on a machine that's like a size or two bigger i need i need a through bore that's like two inches or two and a half inches but i can only pass inch and five eighths bar through the spindle and so i've considered upgrading some parts on it because the spindle bore itself is 2.4 inches and so if i got a different actuator and a different chuck and a different draw tube i could actually pass a two inch bar through there but that's a big project and i'm not sure that i want to deal with that and um it doesn't have a touch setter it doesn't have a chip conveyor it doesn't have a um parts catcher and so those are all things that i would really like to have and i've considered just trying to run this for another six months or a year and then just getting like a like an old daewoo or or who knows what, something. I, I had always wanted to get a Morisiki. I did actually, a year ago, I bought a Morisiki SL0 on eBay, and it was in Boston, and I drove out to just, like, inspect it in person. 
and uh, and then I was going to come back the next weekend with a trailer. And it just wasn't really what the guy said it was. And he like apologized. He's like, I thought it was running better. And like it had some alarm. He couldn't figure out how to clear. And and uh, it just didn't look so sharp. And so he refunded me or whatever. And uh, I never took that home. But the for anyone who doesn't know the Morishiki SL0, it's the cutest lathe in history. It looks like a phone <laughs> booth. And it's bigger than a phone booth, but not a whole lot bigger. <laughs> and it's got like a 5C size. You know, I think you can pass like a inch and an eighth bar through the spindle or something and really small travels but it's it's incredibly rigid for its size and it's just you know it's built really really well and uh the people who i know who've owned them and ran them have only good things to say about them so well yeah i think jeff had one and then that yeah. one has been like passed around to like every yeah, maker so, yeah, in the area yeah, <laughs> yeah it, yeah, there, it seems like sweet. a cool light though yeah I, I really wanted one but uh it's just what I need is like something that, yeah, it's just bigger. I need, and, and I've considered buying a new lathe maybe and just taking on payments sometime in the next year. Like, a, I don't know. I, I like my Haas mill a lot. I don't have any regrets except on the Haas mill. I would get, I would get the better chip conveyor and I would get the 50 tool changer because the chip conveyor on it, I got the single auger. That thing is garbage. I hate it. <laughs> and then uh, the, the tool changer, when you do a standard tool library, like I do, uh, the 30 plus one sidearm tool changer, you can't do the standard tool library with an umbrella, in my opinion, but you can with a sidearm tool changer. But if you go from the 30 pocket to the 50 pocket, then you really don't, it really just opens up a lot of potential to not be touching off tools ever. So that's, I kind of wish I had that. When I think about lathes, I'm not sure that I would get a Haas lathe. And I think the biggest factor there is just that they're loud. Like it, whenever you watch a video of a Haas lathe, the spindle has this high pitched kind of whine to it. And the, my first mill was so loud. I just don't want to do that again. Like, I know it's not as loud, but I just, I want a quieter machine if I'm going to spend that kind of money for a new machine. Yeah. I, I think when you work every day right next to your machines and it's your whole life, like you, you value quiet. I mean, we just bought a new compressor, yeah. not because we needed more air, but because I wanted something silent. So <laughs> yeah, I bought a Kaiser when I moved into this shop and I, I didn't really want to spend that much money and to get like a super high end compressor, but the more I looked at it, it's like, well, if I want something kind of quiet, you can get like the Eastwood scroll and those are a little bit more of a question mark. And then you can spend like five grand and you can get something that's like probably solid. But the only brand that I never heard anybody say anything too bad about was Kaiser. It seemed like every other brand, like somebody was griping about this or they had a bad experience here or there. And I'm sure that, you know, I probably have a very small sample size of opinions, but, um, and the Kaisers are just, you know, made in Germany. They have that mystique, like, I felt like if I was going to spend that kind of money, might as well just spend a little bit more and get the, the whatever. But yeah, it's amazing having a quiet compressor. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think our new one should be here Monday or Tuesday. And I'm uh, it was supposed to be here Friday, but I think it got caught up in whatever big storm you guys are having out east. So yeah, um, I yeah, I, I can't wait. <laughs> I am so, so ready to not hear my compressor turn on and like pound the air for however long it takes. Yeah. Um, on my lathe, a couple more notes about that, I guess. It's pretty sweet. I've been able to get good surface finishes. I think there's something wonky with the x-axis, but it seems to hold size pretty good. So I guess I'm not going to tear into that unless I need to. And uh, yeah, it's pretty good. I would recommend it to people. The hydraulic pump is a little bit loud, but it's, it's a pretty sweet machine. And 
Oh, and it's got VDI 30 tool holders. Those are sweet. You can like take them out and put them back in. They're super repeatable. So if you have like a drill or a boring bar that might get in the way for a certain part, you can just take it out and set it somewhere else. And then when you need it again, you can put it back in and you don't, you know, like a lot of tool holders on lathes aren't going to work that way. So. Yeah, totally. That's really handy. I mean, and especially for an older lathe. Yeah. It sounds like you're optimizing the best you can. I'm trying to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very cool. Um, I guess the other questions we had, uh, like you said, Thomas Hosford asked about bringing machines into your old shop with his dad. Yeah, no, with my dad. Yeah, it was crazy. Oh. Um, I I always moved my own machines and they started off smaller, like a Bridgeport and stuff. And I got a rigging quote on that. And it was going to be like almost as much money on all those machines to rig them to my shop as it was to buy them. So I was like, that's crazy. And I figured out how to move them. And it's not so hard to move a bridge port. I made a YouTube video about moving a bridge port, actually. Like, you block it up, and then you use a pallet jack. And it's not too hard to move one of those on a rented trailer. And then when it came to move this torque cut machine, it's 6,500 pounds. And I didn't even – it's not like it was in my shop, and I had to figure out how to move it. It was like – it was 400 miles away or whatever, and I had to figure out how to move it. And I couldn't take measurements. But uh, anyway, I rented a trailer from Sunbelt Rentals, and it was at – tilt bed trailer and then i rented a f-250 from enterprise which was like 450 bucks for the weekend so i didn't have my truck back then and then my dad came uh from michigan for the weekend and we got up at like six in the morning and we drove to connecticut and they loaded this machine on the trailer and then we drove back to new york and we backed it into my shop and we had to slide the machine off of this tilt bed trailer and uh it didn't want to slide and i was afraid to put wheels under it i had made these like wheels that I could roll it on, but I didn't want to put those under it and then have it like roll off the trailer. And so we used like a come along and we were like sliding it down. And then we had like a (laughs) bottle jack and we were like jacking it like three inches at a time. And it took hours, but we did slide it off of the trailer and we got it into my shop and, and I didn't have to pay riggers. So that was, it was pretty cool. Like when you pull off a project like that and it actually works, it's, it feels pretty good. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it it sounds as sketchy as it might have been, the guy, we had this like 85 Kitamura that we bought that was needed a lot of work. And we bought it and thought like, oh, this will be our second machine. Um, and when we sold it, the guy who he paid to rig it had a drop deck trailer and just used Harbor Freight uh, winches and just literally yanked this thing across the floor yeah. onto the trailer. Um, and it was so sketchy because he's just like you know, jacking up one corner at a time with this big, long pry bar and yanking it with this thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, I just use these winches until they die. And then I go trade it in for another one. Yeah. I'm like, OK, man, whatever whatever you want to do, just don't don't break my building. Like you, you can break the machine all you want. It's not mine anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, w- when I got the Haas, I finally had to hire riggers to move that into my shop because that one's like 14,000 pounds. And because I didn't really own it. You know, it's like I'm on payments. And so like, I can't risk that. (laughs) Like I can't have a hundred thousand dollar machine that I need to pay off, get like dropped or something. Uh, So anyway, I I hired riggers and that was, it was $4,600 to have them pick it up off the trailer and bring it into my shop and set it down. And I think that's partly because my old shop there was like, it just didn't have very good access and like the ground was soft. So they had to bring plates and all that. Yeah. And they had you over a barrel because what else are you going to do? And then, to move from New York to Michigan, I hired riggers again. So they moved my old uh, lathe, the 96 lathe and the VF4. And then I have these four, you know, list of cabinets. And just to move all that stuff, 
the two riggers and the trucking company was ten and a half thousand dollars and it's just Oof. yeah it's brutal but it's like i don't know i was kind of bracing for that I, I just i sort of knew when i bought the haas i didn't know that i wanted to stuff it in that tiny shop because i knew i was going to be moving again at some point but i wanted the machine and i wasn't ready to move yet i hadn't figured out where i would go next and i i was paying three hundred dollars a month in that shop and so i was like i could move somewhere and now my rent is going to like quintuple or more or something or <laughs> or I can just get this machine and then, you know, like the break even is like six months, you know, like the difference in rent versus the cost of rigging it in, you know, like my break even point is like six months. So I might as well just move it into this small shop and then figure out where I'm going to move later. And so I did, but to think back that I spent, you know, like uh, over $15,000 in rigging in, in 12 months is just hurts. Yeah. It's painful for sure. <laughs> yeah. It, it seems like breakers just kind of pull a number out of thin air and they're like well this is what you can pay or you can find somebody else and it's like yeah okay great thanks i got multiple quotes for that one that was forty six hundred dollars and they were within like three hundred dollars of each other and it's like i think the one guy called the other guy and asked if he had quoted me <laughs> like i think i think they're conspiring here i think because i'm just small potatoes you know they're like installing bridges and all this stuff like they don't want to screw around with you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> it does seem like kind of a racket sometimes um oh and then Easton asked uh three reasons that I should replace the kitty with a lathe. Yeah, you should do it. Lathes are cool because I mean, have you run a lathe much at work? Uh a little bit. Like I think I spoke about it a little bit on here, but the only or the, the first job they stuck me on on the lathe was a 13-inch diameter donut of 174 on an yep. eight inch chuck. So I had to like make special jaws that <laughs> really like I, I called Kitagawa and they were like, oh yeah, we recommend you like cut no more than nine inches in diameter or like eight and a half inches in diameter on this eight inch chuck. And I'm like, well, I, I can't. So thanks. Um, have a great day. Yeah. So, yeah. It was, it was sketchy, but it all worked out. And so like, it was a real trial by fire. Um, yeah. you know, a hardened steel already way bigger than the chuck should have been, you know, tool clearances sucked, but, um, I, it was still a lot of fun. And like now I definitely feel a lot more confident, you know, taking on a small aluminum job or something like that. Yeah. My favorite is uh, on Instagram is Pete Florio. I don't know if you know him. He has a, a Morisiki SL 35 and uh, he's just this, I don't know, like 50 year old dude who just has these old machines and he just loves the work. He just makes all these like mechanical seals or whatever and shafts and things all the time. And he's just, like really really good i think he manually programs at the machine i just love seeing that he always does these beautiful like instagram chip of the week things but uh just i don't know anybody who just loves the work itself nearly as much as him <laughs> because he's like it seems like he's doing kind of the same stuff but he just loves it like he's not i don't know that he's always trying to do something new but anyway i didn't follow him but i just followed him yeah it looks like some cool stuff he looks like the little Instagram's picture of him, the thumbnail, he looks like Kevin Costner in that. But I imagine if you zoom in, that's probably not what his face really looks like. I just like to imagine <laughs> that he is Kevin Costner. <laughs> yeah, he's just researching a role. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So lathes are sweet, though, because they, uh, they're really productive. And that's the thing I'm always trying to explain to people, like in the frame building world, especially who are interested in CNC. And they're like, maybe I'll get a CNC lathe or a CNC mill someday. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, like a CNC mill will allow you to make complicated things and it will allow you to make many of them. But like a CNC lathe 
a lot of times you can get that done on a manual lathe. It depends what you're doing, but the beauty of a CNC lathe is just so freaking productive. And like, especially if you can bar pull stuff, it's, it's amazing. So like a lot of my stuff, I would love to have a subspin to live tool lathe, but I realized that since I design all my own parts, I can usually get it done with a two axis lathe. I can just make the round features and then I can build some sort of fixture or soft jaws on the mill and I can finish it. And so with, with the fourth axis on the mill, I can hit multiple sides of the part and I can, I can put a chamfer if there's like a, like a pip from parting or something. I, uh, it's a really good combo so far. It seems to be working really well for me that it's like, you're not asking a whole lot of the lathe at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like you've, for what you're doing, it sounds like you've really nailed down what you need. And uh, I'm sure your next lathe purchase will be no yep. more machine than you really need. Yeah. What I want now, this is my dream lathe, is uh, like a circa 2000 Daewoo Lynx with uh, the LC model, the 220 LC or whatever with the with the larger bar capacity. Those will take like a 2.6 inch bar. So if anybody's sitting on one of those and they got like the chip conveyor and they got the um, they got the parts catcher, let me know. <laughs> yeah we have a, a few daewoo and Dusan lathes at work and they're they're nothing but bulletproof like i know i've heard bad things about their mill turns from you know jake yates and and different things about their mills i've never been their iron is fantastic for their mills but a- anyway um yeah. their their lathes have been nothing but 100 percent bulletproof yeah for sure um what's next uh, well, we can get into a uh, 30 versus 40 taper discussion. Yeah, that was one thing I wanted to ask you. You know, for what I do, and and I, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this, I see a lot of people getting like Speedios and stuff, and I think those machines are so sexy and so cool. And just to me, like the Fast Rapids are just mesmerizing and they're exciting. They put you in this shop environment where you feel like excited about what you're doing. It's kind of thrilling. You feel like stuff's really happening. And like my old machine, the Rapids were... 350 or something inches per minute you know it's really slow and so it's just you just feel like you know you take your time and so it's kind of cool but for what i'm doing it's like all i really want is to be able to run the machine unattended for as long as possible and so i actually made and i printed out and i stuck it on the wall i it says programming objectives to remind me and i said you know first thing is great parts the second thing is longer walkaway time the third thing is minimal machine setup the fourth thing is multi-axis the fifth thing is you know, more finished parts per cycle, greater process reliability, easily editable programs. So I don't need to start from scratch when I go to make a tweak, uh, intuitive or foolproof process. I want in-process probe inspection. So I don't need to be measuring stuff as much afterwards, greater tool life. And then at the very bottom of the list of programming objectives, I put reduced cycle time. And I feel like this is truly reflective of like what I'm trying to do is that the cycle time is just not the highest priority. Like all those other things are kind of more important to me so that I can just keep the machine running. Cause you know, I'm also packaging stuff and designing things and talking to customers. And so, you know, like that's what I see as being one of the biggest strengths of a machine like that is it's just fast as blazes. Like, uh, and I think they're really beautiful and well-made machines, but like, what's your take on that? You know, to me, it seems like with a really fast 30 taper machine, the idea is that you just kind of stand in front of it and then every one minute the part is done or something and you advance it. But like, what has been your experience? Do you feel like you do have to babysit it a lot or do you get many longer cycles? Um, so I, I think it really depends on the work you're kind of doing. Like for you, you're doing production of known parts. Um, so you do want, well, and you're only one person. Like if you had a helper, you would want to reduce those cycle times so that you can make more parts per day. Or, or maybe you would, but um, 
Like yeah. for you, a longer cycle time and more process reliability makes the most sense for your current situation. Yeah. And like for me, shorter cycle times make maybe not the most sense. Like I still want process reliability and I need dead nuts parts every time, but like I'm doing quick term prototype work. So like I had repeat work that went from the kitty to the brother and shaved 40% off yeah, without touching awesome. it. You know, it was just rapids and tool changes. And you don't um, even have that fast of a spindle. You're just like 10 K. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's a 10 K high torque. And so like, it was, it was not at all cutting time. that was decreased. It was just, yeah, you know, j just rapids and just tool changes. That's crazy. Um, so it, for me, that makes a lot of sense because it's like, for me, I'm setting up five ops a day and there's three parts in each op and I just need to get them done. And so it's like, you know, every little bit that I can save is great. Uh, granted, I do like longer cycle times too. Like I had a part this weekend that ran for an hour and 40 minutes and I was like, man, I've got so much time I can clean. I can program the next stop. I can do this. I can do that. And like, yeah, it, it's all nice. Um, so I, I think it's just different strokes for different folks kind of thing. Like there's definitely benefits to both of them. Um, like the speedos are nice and 30 taper is nice because it's a lot cheaper. Like tool holders are, you know, even for Mari tool or what, 30, 40 bucks cheaper a piece. Um, and just the consumables in general are a lot cheaper. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I can't swing a giant three quarter inch end mill three and a half inches deep with super big confidence. You know, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't put that even on the dual contact. I wouldn't like I, I would do it if I absolutely had to. But, man, I I would prefer not to if I could help it. Like 40 Taper yeah. definitely has its place for hogging. And like Brad and I, my business partner, have talked about that. Like, I think our next machine will probably be a, another brother. Um, but we've also looked at like, you know, an Akuma or something like that, because it'd be nice to have something that we could just really swing a big end mill or a big face mill or something like that and really hog some chips off every now and again. Yeah. So, so riddle me this, uh, Haas versus brother or other machine tool builders. Uh, I remember you were saying a couple weeks ago, something about with the deals, somebody asked if you would ever buy Haas or something. And you said you probably wouldn't. And um, I mean, I have my own reservations about Haas and I know a lot of people, some people just don't like Gene personally. Some people feel like they don't have a very good build quality reputation. Uh, I mean, do you care to get into any of those things about like what it is that would keep you from ever wanting to have a Haas? So I've run quite a few Haases and personally, I just don't find them as rigid as they should be. Your yeah. mill's 14,000 pounds and I've run you know, 35 taper or 30 taper Kitamuras that were just as rigid as a VF4. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I don't know, I think like there is a place for both of them. Definitely. Uh, I, I don't know. P personally, I just like, like for me, the brother, I wanted something that like, I would never have to see my service tech unless I had to. And like, a lot of people are like, Oh, well, Haas has such great service. And it's like, I would <laughs> like, I have great service through Yamazin and I love my techs through Yamazin, but like we've had the machine a year now and I've never had them out for a single thing. And like, yeah. I don't anticipate seeing them. Like if this machine can run in China for five years straight with zero maintenance and zero shits given about it, I know that it's going to last me 10 plus years with almost no mate, like almost no service calls and pretty decent maintenance. So yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know. It, I, I really understand the Haas like attractiveness though, too. Like it, like you said, the pricing's all right there. They have great deals. They have great prices. The control is like by far the most user-friendly in the world. Yeah. Um, I wish that oh. other machine tool builders would get off their asses and like market better because 
I think like when you're a prospective buyer and you're, you're kind of interested in, in what somebody has to offer. I mean, for me anyway, it's like, you just want to drool for a while and you want to like study up and you want to learn and you want to imagine like, what is it really going to be like every day firing this thing up and using it? And Haas makes it so easy to get a picture of what that's going to be like and feel like and work like. And then all these other ones, it's such a big question mark. And some of them have a little bit more literature resources than others. I know when I talked to the Doosan sales guys, they did mail me this or email me this like PDF that had, you know, the DNM 4500 in that series had a bunch more specs. And it was pretty cool, like to see the the naked machine, just like the casting. And I'm like, holy shit, this thing is like their DNM 4500, which is like the VF2 travel equivalent. It's like 11,000 pounds. I think a VF2 is like 7,500 pounds. It's <laughs> it's a lot yeah. more iron. And the base of it is like a more of a pyramid shape. It's like way wider footprint. And it's it's awesome. Like, that's cool. I'm sure that any of the issues that you'd have with the low memory size of the Fanuc can probably be overcome. But it's just a lot. It's a bigger question mark next to the idea of buying it. And it's not that I wouldn't give it a chance. It's just like they're not making the case for themselves. They're doing a really bad job at advocating for themselves. It's like they they want you to do your own research or something. And uh, anyway, it's just, yeah, it was just too easy with Haas and they run too, too good of deals. And now that I have that and standardization is important that like if I ever run out of spindle hours on this machine, I'm just going to buy the same exact thing again with the better chip conveyor and the 50 tool changer. I'm like, I'll, I'll have the same arrangement of vices and the same Pearson palette and rotary. And like, cause the standardization is key to be able to run the same program on either machine. So now I feel like I'm kind of, I, I would at least need to get another machine with the same travels, the same max RPM and the same, uh, uh, side mount tool changer, you know, like it, yeah, it totally. have to be a side mount, but yeah, and, and I think I don't want to discount Haas at all. Like I, I think they do, they do the full life cycle of the machine better than anybody else. Like like you said, you can drool over it, you can learn it beforehand on their YouTube channel. You can, I mean, now you can buy tooling and work holding through them. Yeah. Um, they make financing easy because it's all through them. They make pricing easy because it's all through them and and, and open and all that stuff. So I, I think that, like I, I totally understand why people buy Haas's, and like I think that they work they, they just make parts um, yeah no it's it's been good uh and yet i'm not really a haas fanboy or anything but uh, yeah i have one <laughs> right and um, it makes you money and that's that's what matters really you know uh, you, you know devin who does uh lichen precision yeah yeah we've been Lycan talking MFG. About it, yeah because he has two brothers now um but anyway i he had gotten his first speedio at least a couple months before i got my haas and i was talking because he's in the bike world and I was talking to him on the phone about this stuff and he was making the case for why he didn't get a Haas, but he had thought about it. And then he's like, but at the end of the day, you can make money on any of these machines. Like it's hard to go wrong. You know, like they're all, they have strengths and weaknesses and like, you know, whatever you want, like you'll probably figure out how to make money on it. And if you can't, then you probably weren't going to make money on a different one, you know? Yeah. 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 And really, I think it just comes down to what experiences you have with each brand. Like I, we had already had the old brother and our Yamazan office like came out and serviced it and installed the card for free when we bought it. Like, because yeah. like they even said to me, he was like, I can't expect you to buy another brother if we don't at least support the one that you have, even if you didn't buy it from us. And I was like, yeah, you know, you, you, you got me hooked. Like that's, that's exactly what I want to hear from a, a service perspective. So, yeah. So shout out to Klausing industrial in Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo is just the next city over. They're like an hour drive from me here. 
And uh, I remember I reached out to them years ago because I had a closing manual lathe. And so I asked about parts once or twice. But anyway, now that I got this CNC lathe from them from 1996, uh, I was like, I was so worried that I was going to lose the parameters from a dead battery on this old FANUC control. And I was like, I was just really trying to get the machine powered up so that then I could figure out how to save the parameters. And it had these key sheet membranes over the keyboards that were like total garbage. And so I had also bought some replacement like little membrane stickers that you stick over the keyboards. And I bought a cheap one because from Fanuc, they're like $140. And then it was $10 on eBay for the same thing. And so I just bought the $10 one on eBay and I carefully stuck it on and it didn't fit perfect. And then I flip on the machine and the machine was all weird. And like, anyway, it, the, the reset key was being held down by this crappy key membrane and it wiped my freaking parameters. And that was uh -huh. like the next thing on my to-do list was to back up the parameters. And I was so frustrated and frustrated with myself that I let that happen. And so now I had this like, you know, 25 year old machine with no parameters. And I'm like, Oh God, help me. And I called up Klausing and they were awesome. And uh, I guess that's the point of the story is uh, don't do that with the key sheet membrane. <laughs> and also uh, Klausing is great. And I would not hesitate to buy a cold saw or a manual mill or any of the things that they sell nowadays. I don't know where all that stuff's made or the build quality necessarily, but the service that I've experienced multiple times on the phone has been really, really good. And I called them and I said, now that I live in Michigan, like, could I get one of you guys to come out here if I need help with this? And they said, oh yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I would not hesitate amazing. to buy another old Klausing for that reason. I think, uh, Jeff was saying that he had the, his dad had the Klausing VMC in their shop there. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I don't know what their service experience has been like, but yeah, mine has been really good. Yeah. Well, and going back to your point earlier of like buying an older VMC versus like something like a Tormach, like I, I have always been a big proponent of that as well, but I think that you definitely have to like reach out to the company prior and find out what kind of service they have. Like I, I've loved Kitamura, like the first shop I worked in had, a, I don't know, 12 or 15 of them or something like that. But like they do free phone and email service um, for the life of the machine, like for whoever owns it for, forever. Um, and then same with Yaskawa who owns Yasnak for our Kitamura, that's the control. And like they do free phone and, and email troubleshooting and so like having that kind of backing, like, yeah, we had to fix a lot of things ourselves, but you know what? I knew that if I really got into a bind, I could contact somebody and they'd help me figure it out. Yeah. So that's, that's super helpful. So I want to make a point about going full time because <laughs> this has been on your mind and it's always kind of on my mind. And uh, anyway, I'll tell the story here. I was working at that job for nine months, the machine shop. And maybe I'm just a millennial brat and I don't want to work and whatever. But anyway, I just got tired of not having any opportunity to like learn and grow there. And so I, you know, I told the president of the company that like I wanted some more opportunities or else I was going to have to leave. And then I talked to him the next week and nothing had happened. And then the third week I gave him my two weeks notice. But anyway, I was, it was kind of scary to like quit that because, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And uh, anyway, I did. And. It was like clearly one of the best decisions in my entire life that and like buying an old machine and starting to do it was the best thing ever. And I look at the last nearly three years that I've been doing what I do now and there's just no way that I, I mean, I just would have been working myself crazy to make even a quarter of the progress. And in my life, I think nothing makes me feel like happier and better about where I'm at than just seeing that things are moving and I'm making progress. Uh, and so like, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, 
like what I was doing was living as cheap as I could and just doing it full time. And that was a really good recipe for me. And now like I can afford to do it a little bit more expensively if I have to, or I don't need to be so cheap about everything. But uh, my, my friend Austin in town here, he has my old Bridgeport torque cut and, you know, he talks about that sort of thing sometimes. Like it'd be cool to, to do something full time for himself. And I just, I just always think it's like, man, you're starting your own, your own work at like 40 at at hour 41, like every week you got to, first you got to get all the other 40 hours in before you can really start doing your own thing. And it's just hard, man. It's like, you want to, I mean, think about having work-life balance ever. And another thing that I think about too, and I don't have work-life balance, but you know, it's COVID like what else am I going to do? You know, I'm in a new city, like might as well just work all the time. But another thing is that your fixed overhead isn't going to change, you know, like the cost of your shop and the cost of your machine payment. They're like, that's not going to change, but your ability to like promise someone a faster lead time that goes up your ability to like take it more seriously and maybe update this part of your website and, you know, maybe like figure out this shipping thing that's been eating a bunch of time, like all those things just go up. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I would encourage you to, to do what's right for you, but also that uh, I think you've probably been ready for a while. And I think uh, once you get there, you're going to say, I can't believe it took so long. Yeah. Well, and it's really funny. Like some of your points, your parent, like, so just before we started recording, so everybody knows we were talking about this and I've got a good friend that owns another business sort of in manufacturing, but not a machinist or anything like that. And we talk weekly about business and, and about things that we can both do better. And he really came down on me this last week about going full time. And uh, he's, he's really been pushing me for a long time. But really, like this last week was laying out some some strong points. And, and a lot of them are what you just said, you know, my fixed, my fixed uh, expenses stay the same. I only have to make x number of dollars per week more to afford myself working there full time. And he was like, what's the likelihood that you can make that much more every week? And I was like, oh, you know, 90% probably. And he's yeah. like, okay. And he's like, worst case, like what happens if you fail? And I was like, I don't know. We sell all the machines and close up shop. And he's like, and then what? He was, I was like, I guess I find another job. He's like, yeah. And, and you know, how hard will that be? And like, at that point you'll have owned your own job. So now you're on the management track. And he's like, you know, the, the, the costs or the p- potential pitfalls are so low compared to the benefits. Yeah. Um, and, so it, it really opened my eyes and what it really opened my eyes to is like, I've been saying for years now, like, Oh, you know, another year or two and I'll go full time. Um, but I never like gave it any thought. Like that was just, I guess my blow off answer. And now that like I'm committed to myself, like I, I think in the next eight to 10 months, I will be full time at Prodium. Dude, just um, two weeks notice tomorrow. Just, you know, get some skin in the game. <laughs> Just yeah. jump out of the plane and build the parachute on the way down. Well, well, what I told him is like, if, if it was just me in the business and it was just me, like I didn't have a fiance, like I would probably do that tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I would, I would jump in with both feet, but like now that I've got some other people that I have to not convince, yeah. like they're both very supportive of, of like, I, I told Brad this, like the day after I had this conversation with my friend and he was like, yeah, that sounds right. He's like, we're in a catch 22 right now. Like we're never going to make enough money that it feels super confident you going full time without you going full time. Yeah, no, um, I think you just need to do it. But I mean, that's, I, I, I feel like my risk profile was that like I could afford to take that kind of risk without losing much. I wasn't really accountable to many other people. And when I did quit my job and I got my own machine, it was like the idea was that I would just become more marketable in a short, you know, like 
I felt like I was capable of probably setting up and programming and running machines and doing all these higher level things. I felt like I probably was really close to that, but I couldn't quite snag those jobs because I didn't quite have that experience. And so just a relatively brief stint of doing that stuff would have put me in a different class with regard to like how much money I could make working for other people. And I feel like as you get older and as you get better jobs and more promotions, and especially if you have like a house like a mortgage and you have kids and stuff, it's just, it's only going to get harder to leave the job. And so I feel like I would encourage a lot of people, like when you're younger and you have less like risk and uh, you have less to gain by staying put, just like, just get out of there, man. Just like, <laughs> you just got to get out of there while you still can. Cause it's just going to get harder uh, as the longer you're there. Totally. Well, and, and the other point he made that really hit home for me was like, there is a giant opportunity cost to not going full-time. Like oh, yeah. I am Massive. underserving my customers. Like I, I, I am at capacity pretty much all the time. And like, I do little things here and there to like, Oh, I, I freed up five hours this week so I can take on an extra job. But like without going full-time, I cannot really grow any further than where I am. Like, I, and I think that that's why it's taken me so long to really get to this point where I'm convinced is like, we weren't operating at peak efficiency for where we are. And like now with the new mill and like we're, we're starting to kind of revamp the business. So we're a lot faster about quoting and all that stuff. I'm starting to feel that constraint of like, okay, I am now, I mean, nobody's operating at hundred percent efficiency, but like I am doing near about the best I can do running a shop and working 40 hours a week. And like, this is all the work I can possibly take on at this point in my life. Yeah. I need to go full time. So it, it really, all of these things have conspired for me to like really get my shit together. And, and I think, like I said, I, I will not be working where I am now this time next year. And yeah, granted, now, like this is also, like you said, COVID times and things are super uncertain. So I guess we'll see, but like, at least this gives me eight to 10 months to like really get my finances in order, get a nice little cash reserve in the business and like get there, you know? So. Yeah. Uh, when is the last time that, you didn't have anything to do at Proteum where like, you know, you came in and you're like, oh, I guess I don't really have any customer parts to quote or to run or like, there isn't really any work to do. Like when's the last time that ever happened? Three or four years ago. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just like, I mean, think about the opportunity cost of like your, your own, uh, for me anyway, my growth was so much more rapid once I had the opportunity to do it. And, uh, you know, you don't get, I mean, for you, like maybe your day job is actually pretty sweet and challenging in the right kinds of ways that you're still learning there. And it probably pays better and has a lot better benefits than what I was getting because the nature of what you're doing. But I just feel like, uh, you know, a lot of times at a job, they want you to work. They want you to perform the same things that you already know how to do because you're efficient and you're productive. They don't want you to learn that often because like that's, you know, and, and when you're doing your own thing, there's always such a, a small business anyway, there's always such a variety to it. You know, one day you're, you're trying to figure out some legal tax crap. That's no fun. And then you're trying to set up, like I just set up DHL for international shipments. That was a pain in the ass, but now I have it. And like, now I know a little bit more about that or, you know, you're researching some new thing all the time. And I feel like just, you, you fast track your own development and your own expertise. And, and it just like, I think it also, when you are working for yourself, it really helps you clarify what you need to do. And it seems like you have pretty good discipline about like staying focused on what you need to do and getting that stuff done. But I think for me, I always treated my shop as sort of like a hobby zone and it was for fun. And it was once I had the CNC and I had quit my other job and I said, 
you know, like when I run out of money, I have to go back to work. I can't let that happen. And I think <laughs> I've been like a more serious and focused person with better discipline than I've ever been because of that. And so I think that has been really helpful to me to like to give myself some consequences or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I, and I just said that recently to somebody we were talking about going full time. And I was like, yeah, I really wish I hated my job because it would make this whole thing a lot easier. Like we started Proteum because I was unhappy with the first place I worked. Like, and then you found I liked my, yeah, well, I mean, it took me two other shops to work through that I hated also, but like now I've, I've really found a place like I am encouraged to learn every day. And like, I can take time out of my day to just do a deep dive on something that I think will benefit the, the, the place. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm, I'm given a lot of buying power and a lot of autonomy, which is all the things that like all the reasons that I wanted to start my own business. But man, like I've taken days off before to like go into my shop and work and even a, you know, 16 hour day at my shop is so much better than a 10 hour day at my day job. So better. You know, I, I should just like pretend to be in the job market and go like, I shouldn't do this. This would be a dick move. But like, I just should like <laughs> work a day or a week somewhere else just to remind me of how much better this is. Cause I probably take it for granted sometimes. I'm sure I do. But uh, yeah, I mean, even like being really frustrated about your own problems and your own crap, I think for someone like me is a lot better than uh, having, you know, an easy or decent day at, at a shop working for other people. Uh, I just, yeah. To like, just, I don't know. It's like an ego thing. I think like, it just feels good to be like working on your own stuff and to feel like your own life, even when it's frustrating, it's like, but these are my problems and it feels good to like be in the middle of them or something. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like home ownership. Like I'm not there yet, but I can only imagine it's much better to feel paying into equity on your home than it is renting and paying somebody else's mortgage, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that, but I, uh, and, and the reason I don't agree with that is because I feel like with the house, some amount of it does go into equity and that it's not meaningless, but I do feel like everybody that I know who gets a house, they like now every night and every weekend, they have this like project hanging over their head that they know they ought to do. And I feel like <laughs> there's such a low return on that. Like the ROI on doing home improvement projects and building yourself a nice house. And then after 30 or 50 or five years or however many long you sell it, I feel like there's a little bit of a return there. But like if you already have a business and you have machines and you have work that you can be selling, there's like way more ROI in that. And if you just if you're not paying like a stupidly inflated rent somewhere, just keep renting. And then like if you want to buy a house because it solves some problem for you, like you have a bunch of kids and you need more space or you want something that feels homey, like those are different, like, you know, like solve for that. But I feel like a lot of people have this idea that like they're throwing their money away with rent. And I feel like. I don't know. It's nice because it arbitrates that that like list of chores always like fixing things. It's like it's not your problem. It's like the landlord's problem. And it, oh, there's I, definitely some upsides to renting. Don't yeah. don't get me wrong. Like, <laughs> yeah, if that water heater breaks and floods your entire place, not having to pay for any of that is is yeah. Pr it's like pretty attractive. Call, you make a phone call to your landlord and you say you got to deal with this. I'm going to work, and then you just go to your own shop and you make couple thousand dollars or whatever it is that you make in a day doing your own thing and you go home and hopefully it's taken care of appropriately but yeah 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 um so let's kind of dive into our, our my normal yep. post questions what's going on in your shop this week oh hiring <laughs> yes so let's go down that path that's a big one i uh so you know i 
never wanted to hire people really, or I was very hesitant to for a long time. And it's just gotten to the point where I think it's kind of inevitable. And I've been very much listening to, you know, like the business of machining and any other source where people are talking about hiring and employees and that sort of thing. I feel like I've been very aware of that discussion for a long time. So I'm not entering this with like no perspective, but I, I have never managed people. And so it's, it's, it's a huge thing. And uh, that's the main thing that I've been thinking about this week. And then also revising this design for this tool that I'm trying to release the frame building fixture. But yeah, that's been cool because my company has enough of a profile that there's definitely like a lot of people applied when I said that I was looking for people to work with. And most of them were not in my immediate area. And I'm like, uh, sorry, like <laughs> I'm trying to find somebody as local as possible. There's like somebody in Switzerland and somebody in India and like, you know, all these like Texas and Arkansas and out West. And, you know, it's like, I, if I had to expand my search radius, I guess I could consider, but never having hired someone before, even if they were the perfect candidate and they were willing to relocate, it's just like a lot of pressure. Like it better work out if they're going to move here, like it better work out for them. Cause I can't, you know, like what if they're a bad fit and I have to let them go, I'm going to feel terrible about that. So. Yeah. Oh, totally. So are you looking for somebody that you can train that is not as skilled then? Yeah, I feel like what I need is help with everything, right? And so like I can do everything. And so if I hire somebody who can just help me with some of it, then uh, we'll get everything done. So I want somebody who's like got a good attitude and who's competent, uh, right? You know, who, who can sort of figure things out. And we're in the beginning, it's just like packing, shipping, assembling orders, you know, maybe running to anodize, feeding the machine. You know, it's pretty easy to teach somebody how to run the machine, uh, you know, like advanced parts and stuff. And then organizing the shop and building out the shop is a huge one because it's such a nice space and it's kind of a pigsty since I moved in here because I have identified that other things are a priority. But <laughs> I'm trying to find somebody who can do that. And in the bike industry, you know, machining is such a different world. I think a lot of people have a different attitude about machining and there's there's more opportunity in machining like if you're if you're driven and you're talented you can get into better paying jobs and stuff but there's just a lot of young people in the bike industry who love bikes to death and they will work at a bike shop for like just really not much money because it's like the lifestyle they want and they're surrounded by something that they love and they're passionate about and so relative to that i feel like there's a lot of mechanically inclined people who work in bike shops who would love to have some sort of exit from that world. That's not, it's not very green pastures as you start to grow up. And I feel like <laughs> if I can find somebody from that world who wants a new opportunity and a new challenge, if they come and work for me and they have the right attitude to do the work that needs to get done, they will through osmosis and through small lessons here and there, they will learn how to run CNC machines. And basically I'm not gonna like stop them from learning anything. So if they wanna watch YouTube videos and I would maybe even pay somebody to take a class at Saunders or something at some point, you know, after they'd worked for me for a little while or teach them stuff here and there. But like, basically you would have the ability to learn all about manufacturing and CNC machining and you'd have access, you know, conditional access to my shop after hours to use the Haas or the lathe or, you know, the TIG welder and the different machines that I have around here. And I feel like for the right person, that's a huge perk. And so, it's just a little bit tricky, but, but not that tricky to find the right kind of person that is really interested in those other perks. And like in the beginning, all I'm asking is relatively simple work. So I like, I, I can't really afford to, and I don't know that it makes sense to offer a huge wage, but I want it to be fair. And then basically I want to be able to offer, you know, the, the sort of 
appropriate raises that track with their skills and development so that I can start somebody with the right attitude. So like I had a couple people apply who already have a lot of experience with machining and fabrication. And, you know, that's just not what I want. Like they probably have better job offers elsewhere and they would be bored doing the simple work and their ideas about how we should machine the parts. I don't know that I would agree with them, you know? So like, I want to hire somebody who doesn't already think they know everything. Who's just happy to like have the opportunity to kind of figure it out with, you know, the be shown the way that I do it. And the, like, you know, I'm, I'm very specific about, there's a hundred good ways to machine the parts, but like I'm trying to machine, like build a system where it, it just kind of happens, you know, like the programs are set and we just rerun them. And So one thing I was thinking about since you posted about, you know, your job opportunities and then you sent me that video the other night of the amp lab is you might want to reach out to them and see if they have any students that are looking for part-time because like they would already have experience with yeah. machining. Um, and they, I mean, it seems like college kids are always, love bikes and, and are riding bikes. And so you might find somebody that fits what you want and you don't have to start them from like, this is what a mill is. This is what a lathe is. But like, at least they're a student. So you don't have to pay them like a ton of money. You know, they're not a professional, um, but it might, yeah. might be something that uh, fits you pretty well. Yeah. Well, I have gotten a lot of good candidates have come to me. And so the, the one sort of like, archetype or whatever of a, of a prospective candidate that I imagined would be somebody who's been working in a bike shop. But the other one is the sort of frame builder. So like, you know, that's my customer base, right? Is people who are these artisan bike builders and you can try to build bicycles, you know, titanium and steel, like really beautiful, excellent stuff. You can try to do that as a business and make money. But I feel like for the most part, people doing that, they have sort of a starving artist mentality which is to say that like they just want to make something beautiful and it's not about the business. It's not about the money. Like maybe they have some aspiration to one day pay the bills, but like it's really more about the craft and making something that they're proud of. And so for a lot of these people, because they don't approach it with much of like a business plan or a business mentality, it doesn't make them any money. Right. And so like just to have the day job option to be in this world would be a big deal. And so some of the people who uh, are interested in working for me have experience with like, fabrication of bikes and being able to have access to like my shop and my TIG welder and stuff would be a huge deal for those people. And, uh, that th those people know more about machining typically than like someone who's just, you know, 22 years old, that's been wrenching in a bike shop for a couple of years. And so, uh, yeah, I have had a couple of those prospective people and I probably will be able to hire somebody who has more than zero background with machining. Awesome. Yeah. I think that there's something to be said about training somebody your way from the ground up, but like, yeah. it's also nice when they have <laughs> at least a base level understanding yeah. of what's going on. So I think I'm clarifying this a lot more now. And I think when you're like five, 10 employees in like John Grimsmo or something, you need to start hiring people who already have a lot of experience because you've already like established a company culture and a workflow. So you don't need to worry so much about them coming in and like, tainting your ecosystem with their ideas or something like if it's the right fit they'll see that and come to you and if not you know and like anyway and and you just don't have the time to like teach them but like right now what i really need help with the most is just this basic stuff so it's like you know i'm offering them like get in on the ground floor right like if you want to stay here for five years you will get really good at machining and running parts and i will teach you to design you know the do the cam and the CAD and you could be making fixtures for me for production and all this stuff. But like, you know, like you got to start at this level that what I'm looking for. And 
yeah. So I, I don't know. I, f- I feel like whenever I listen to anybody give advice about hiring, it seems like I hear very often that like, you know, for your first person, like you just want to hire for attitude and, and interest more than you want to hire for like hard skills. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, an, an intelligent person can pick up on almost anything, you know, if they're motivated. So it, it definitely yeah. makes, makes more sense hiring somebody that has a good attitude that you want to work with that's intelligent yeah. and then go from there. And, and they have to be mechanical, you know, they have to like, cause some people, I don't know, like I tend to think people can learn anything if they want to, but I feel like I know a bunch of people who are just not mechanical and like, you can't teach them. Like it's, it's just because they're not interested. So, and they probably wouldn't apply for the job if they weren't mechanical. But. Well, I saw your whole story about how you specifically left off like your email and stuff and <laughs> had people reach out to you asking for that. And it's like, come on, you can do the modicum of work it is to like go to your website or something and find your email. Yeah, I posted in my Instagram story. I actually took that one down after a minute because it felt like maybe certain people would feel like I was calling them out or something. But yeah, no, I, when I posted about the job listing, I, I told people to email me, but I didn't include my email address. And and I kept getting these two Instagram DMs. People would ask me where I was located. That one's in my Instagram bio. It says Grand Rapids, Michigan. <laughs> and then people would ask me for my email and that one's on my website. But uh, anyway, it's just like what it tells me if somebody sends me the message asking for those things, it tells me that they wouldn't even put two seconds into looking for the answer before asking the question. And that's just not somebody I want to work with. So like, I don't want to judge somebody based on like a snap decision based on some little thing, but it's a good filter. It's like the people who just see the post, cause that's the only place I put it was on Instagram. And then to get an email a little while later from somebody that I've never emailed before and they give me like a real resume and stuff, it suggests that they saw the post, they took action on it, you know, they solved their own problem of figuring out how to do it and they gave me something halfway presentable. And it's like, you know, that doesn't tell me everything about the person, but it tells me a little bit. And it's like, I did that with my frame fixture too, this product that's going to be, you know, four or $5,000 when I release it. And right now there's way more demand because I can't really ship any of these. And so I could make it super easy to get people in my like sales funnel by making it, you know, really easy, like swipe up and click this thing or whatever. But instead I I gave specific directions when I post about it or talk about it. I say, you know, like email me in quotations. I want the creator as the subject line because it's called the creator frame fixture. I like put that in the subject line. And so it's like, yeah, I'm making my customers work, which is kind of annoying because like I should work for them, right? Because they're my customers. But what it does <laughs> is it just sort of qualifies my leads that like if if somewhere in my inbox, I search, I want the creator and like there's 40 emails or something. It's like these people are pretty good prospects. They're probably pretty interested in buying it. So when I first release it, I won't be able to keep up with demand. And eventually I think I will. And then I'll have them sitting on the shelf and I'll be trying to sell them. I'll have to market it more. But in the very beginning, people really want this thing and uh, it's not out yet. And so in the beginning, I just want to have these qualified leads that I know like these people on this email list, like they put in some work, they're pretty interested in buying it. Yeah. I I think that that's totally fair Um, and and totally fair for you to do with your job listing too. Like it's, I, I, that's not a very high bar to set is like, you know, go to my website and look up the two pieces of information you might have an an idea with. You know, it's like posting on Craigslist and saying like, if the ad's still up, the product's still available. And then you get 40 emails that are like, is this still available? And it's like, Oh buddy. (laughs) Um, What was I going to say about, 
Oh, I think, you know, the bike industry attracts people who love bikes and they just, you know, they want to, like, if you work in a bicycle shop, you're going to see all the local riders and you're going to get to work with bikes. You're going to get to build up some really nice ones. So there's some perks there. I also think the bike industry tends to attract uh, sometimes or a lot of times people who just like didn't really want to get a real job because it didn't sound like fun. And so I get that and that's fine. But like, I need to know that if I'm going to hire somebody who comes directly from like the bike shop bike world, that they're not helpless and that they can solve their own problems. And I'm sure many of them can, but like, that's part of why I wanted to put that filter up. Cause if you've only ever worked in a bike shop or something and you don't have a lot of experience, like just with a variety of different work things and stuff. I just want to make sure that they're not totally helpless. And I'm sure many, many people are not, but probably some are. Yeah. And going back real quick, just to touch on it, congrats on getting to where you are with your frame fixture. I was going back through your Instagram the other day and saw like your initial frame fixture from years ago. And like it has come so far and looks so good now. (laughs) It's I'm really looking forward to seeing you release that. It, it, It really is quite the epic piece. Yeah. Yeah. The first one I made before I knew how to use CAD and I made it all on my Bridgeport, you know, in my manual lathe. And it's really, it's kind of similar in a lot of ways functionally, but when you're trying to engineer the whole project so that it's very manufacturable and so that it's versatile to work with all different kinds of people and all their needs, and it's something that ships well, and it's, you know, just all these things. I feel like the whole project, you know, I could have finished this project in like a couple of weeks if I was just trying to recreate something that already existed or just make it kind of work. But when you're trying to make a whole project really work well and not have to go back and make a hundred little incremental revisions later, uh, that's hard, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a, it, it's a serious assembly, like watching you go through all the little parts and stuff and, you know, talk about them on your Instagram stories. And like, we've talked about them a little bit and there, there's a lot that's going into that. And you've really thought out a lot of the really cool indexing features and, and angle stuff. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's impressive. Yeah. You know, a good fixture for building the bike frame. If you're going to build a couple bike frames a month or, you know, at least a couple a year or something, you, or some people are building, you know, five, 10 a week, they're in a bigger production facility, but anyway, you know, you should be able to set the, the, linear and angular variables in like under a minute you should be able to set all of them to scales that are already on there you know like uh, i think welding tips and tricks jody had a youtube video where this one frame builder mike sancanato had sent him a tube set and then jody welded it up and it was cool to watch jody do a bike thing but anyway he had like a just a general fabrication tool with the the layout holes the 16 millimeter holes or whatever in the different clamps and he rigged it up and it was mostly pretty good but you know, you spend a long time getting it in order. And uh, I mean, you might spend half an hour or something really getting all these pieces. You know, you want a really tight fit at your joints, like less than a fingernail or something where the tubes come together because it's thin wall stuff that you're trying to get a good weld on. It needs to be a tight fit up. So getting everything set up just so you, you just lose a ton of time. And then, and then you're welding it on the horizontal, which is a pain in the ass for a lot of reasons. And so to have a fixture that just sets up quickly, that gives you good weld access, and that's like pretty looking and all the linear motion is nice and smooth and it's, it's kind of tough, but the beauty of CNC is that like a lot of these parts are just as much work to make, whether the design sucks or the design is great. So if you get the design good and then you end up selling a bunch of units, then, you know, that design is worth its weight in gold. And so I'm really just trying to get that as good as I can. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you're, you're very nearly there. Yeah. And I have to thank Tom Lipton as my number one mentor from afar when it comes to all these design considerations. Cause uh, 
I just feel like nobody ever gave me as much enthusiasm for like making stuff and like as, as many like good useful tips that you can enact as him. And I think uh, I'll always tell people about like, oh, he made the heavy duty steady rest for his lathe and he made the etching press for his wife and he made this, you know, hydraulic press and this thing and that thing. And I don't know. I know a lot of people know Tom Lipton if they watched his stuff. And I just think a lot of times it's hard to even realize these projects like I don't know where you would point someone if you wanted to show them a picture of like the etching press Tom made or some of these other things. But uh, it's like, it's only once you really sit to start to sit down and watch these half hour long videos that like, I feel like you really get into the meat and potatoes. So like what makes that so valuable? And um, there's a lot of good tip videos and, you know, like uh, the guy who does edge precision and Rob Renzetti, and there's a, ton of people that I've learned a lot from who make videos and stuff, but I don't know. Something about Tom's is just always going to have this magic place in my heart. Yeah. Tom's a great guy. He was fantastic to have on the podcast and uh, his videos, they are just really, really cool. Like I've been watching his aerodynamic bearing videos yeah, recently. And so good. Yeah. It's like, man, now I want to make one. Like I have zero reason to want one. I have zero reason to make one, but now I want to make one. <laughs> So uh, there's a bike trade show that uh, moves around every year. And it was in Sacramento in this like um, almost two years ago in March. And so anyway, I had never been to California, but I flew out and uh, Jeff Tiedekin and uh, his partner, Crystal, uh, like put me up for the better part of a week, which is amazing. Thank you, Jeff. And so I got to know Jeff a lot better, which I always admired Jeff. And, and Jeff has been an inspiration to me because I feel like he's just this bold guy who just like got some crazy idea and then he actually does it. And I just have so much admiration for the people who it like, you know, kind of put their ideas into practice, uh, yeah. like li living in your machine shop. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> so cool to like get to know them and and all like the the people that he introduced me to in that short period there uh just so cool such like it's just the most inspiring thing that ever happened to me uh and and i always come from this sort of modest places you know in the midwest my dad was a farmer and then i worked in this this you know very modest like machine shop which is honest people doing hard work for honest pay and boring parts and whatever and then you go out there and you see it's all these stupid tech company charming idiots who like they have an idea they convince some venture capitalist investors to throw money at it and now the situation they're in is like they need this thing done yesterday and they have money and they don't care what it costs they need talented people to help them realize their vision and so if I could go back to when I was 22, I'd just move to the, you know, the Bay Area and I'd just get a job working for one of these companies. And I mean, I, I'm happy with where I'm at now. So that's cool, too. But like anyway, I just I didn't realize that kind of opportunity existed back, you know, well, now and back then. Uh, if you're going to work for somebody like what an awesome place to go. And when I was out there, I got to tour Tom Lipton's, you know, the, the Berkeley Labs because uh, it's a government lab and they'll show you around. So it's like the. John Saunders did a tour there. But anyway, uh, Tom gave me a tour. It was like all freaking morning. It was like three, four hours. He was showing me around there. And then it was lunchtime. And I was like, can I buy you lunch? And then, you know, we like left there and we went to this place and I bought him a burger and a milkshake and we were talking. And he's like, I really got to get back to work. It's just <laughs> it was like the coolest thing ever. Uh, Tom is amazing. And I, he always, always be near and dear to my heart. So uh, anyway, if, anybody who has an opportunity to go to, uh, that part of the world and, and see that shop and any of that other stuff. I just think there's a really cool energy. People just, they're not afraid to dream big. Like they're the same kind of people. They're not any smarter than us average <laughs> modest people. They're just like, they're not really, it's like in, um, 
Inception when Tom Hardy says, you know, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. He's talking, about, <laughs> talking about a gun or something. But yeah, I mean, it's just like, it, I think that really informs where I'm at now. It's just like, I, uh, I want to do good work and I want to work hard at it and, and all that. But like, I just, I don't want to have these small dreams. Like, you know, there's no reason you can't dream big and, and want big things and, and do it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I love the the phrase charming idiot because that definitely describes some of those. <laughs> I'm people. sure they're not, but it's easy <laughs> to feel that way because it's like these all these half-baked ideas you hear about that it's like they got $27 million to do this and like, wait, to do that? Right, right, right. <laughs> Jeff has a lot of those stories. Like there was one about some like rideshare company, but for pilots or something. And he's like, it breaks all these FAA rules and like, it, like it's terrible. Da, 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 da. And like this kind of... You know, like making out all these these charming idiots at the heads of companies to be these like um, con men, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to put words in Jeff's mouth, but I just I hear that theme a lot that, uh, you know, these these people have, you know, they, they they're, because they're so charming, they can get the capital from these investors. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it all makes sense. <laughs> I'll have to ask him about it. I'm sure he'll have to be back on so we can yeah. finish our six hour episode. Yeah, no, yeah, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff's my favorite, um, for sure. Anyhow, um, I, I had made a list, but I, I had kind of covered most of those things. Oh, what okay. have you been? What have you been researching this week? That's one of the questions, right? Yeah, I was just about to ask you that, but you beat me to it. Um, so, let's see. I just had it up on my phone. Oh, so one thing is, I'm like diving into ACH payments. Like we've never, I think I've done one or two in the life of our business. And like, now I've got a few customers that are like, Hey, can we not pay you checks and do this? And so like, I have to, there's not much research to do there, but at least a little bit. What then, ACH payments? What is that? Yeah. It's like a direct payment more or less. It's, it's similar to a wire, but they batch them three times a day. Um, and there's lower fees on them versus credit cards or something like that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, I, I do a lot of PayPal invoices and that the fee on that kind of sucks. And, um, and then I have a web store and I'm trying to get it so that everything you can just buy through the web store, which is kind of a mess because you got to have a really good, like, well, it's great, but like getting it set up can be a little complicated because all the shipping quoting is, is critical to that. And that gets a little complicated, but I really need to put some time into that because I lose a ton of time to like quoting shipping and, and invoicing people manually. Uh, but but also the fee associated with I think it's three or four percent from PayPal. It's not nothing. Yeah, it sucks. Um, so that, that's one reason. Like I, I prefer to get paid by check, and, and most of our customers are fine with that because they're old school anyway. Um, but I've got a few that are like, you know, we can pay you by check, but it'll be a lot quicker if you just do this. I'm like, oh well, I guess I should look into it then. Um, so I was looking into that, and then I'm also looking into creating a different web store or another host for our with intolerance podcast t-shirts um and like you know merch and stuff like that because right now we're going through store frontier and they just like gouge everyone on shipping um hmm. I, I appreciate everybody like, you know anybody who wants to buy a shirt like we have them on store frontier it's i think a storefrontier.com slash with intolerance um it, the link is in our bio but like i, I do apologize up front they, like i think I, I bought two shirts for contest winners and like shipping on two shirts was like 15 bucks yeah and I'm like, you know, come on, it's a T-shirt. You can throw it in a, a fl- flexible envelope and it's like five bucks. Like, don't don't yeah. tell me it's 15 bucks. And somebody reached out and was like, you know, hey, I, I'm international and the shipping is as much as your T-shirt is. And I'm like, you know, I 
I have no control over that. So anyway, I'm, I'm looking into a few different yeah. ways to do that. Like I might have to make a front end on my website that then back feeds to these fulfillment centers. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I also might just look into local sourcing uh, again. I, I've done some local t-shirts and the first place I went to, I wasn't super happy with. So I just started going online, but I'd like yeah. to support local if I can. Yeah, it's it's hard shipping smaller stuff. And like one of the things, one of the reasons I haven't integrated my web store better is that I have these small things that will fit into a USPS priority mail, small flat rate box, and they're kind of heavy. And so for like seven, eight bucks, whatever, I can ship them anywhere in the United States with tracking. They get there in two days. And USPS does a great job domestically 99% of the time or more. And so that's a winner. And if I had to send it by weight and distance, which is how you know they usually calculate postage, it would be more money because it's it's kind of heavy, but they fit into the small box, right? So like blocks of aluminum and stainless steel and whatever. So it's been kind of hard to to like change it so that my web store is all automated and it ships by weight and distance because I feel like it's gonna it's gonna start costing people more money to get the same thing. But what that means then is that I can't. It's not a scalable process. Like I can't offer. Like, like basically right now, if you order my stuff, you have to select the product as either domestic or international, and then the price is different, and then there's no shipping that's assessed. And then it just doesn't, it doesn't work because like my bigger products, then I have to, I have to charge the shipping manually and I have to do all this quoting and I need to ship it, switch it so that everything is just calculated by weight and distance. And it knows the weight of everything and it knows the distance based on what the person puts in the checkout information and it just happens automatically. And yeah, my customers ha- might have to pay a couple more bucks, but like it's a process that I can live with and hopefully the tools provide enough value that it doesn't kill too bad. But um, with well, stuff it might like be worth t- reaching out to like, like we, we have a FedEx account now and we got hooked up with their one rate, one rate program. Yeah. And so like anything that fits in a small box, no matter the weight, I mean, it could be like 300 pounds of tungsten chips <laughs> for five bucks or whatever it is. Um, I, don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, but like we've, we've got one rates for small and medium boxes because those are the ones we use the most often. Yeah. Um, and then like, but I, I think that if you shipped, you know, everything in every different size, they would give you one rate prices for all of that. And that way, I, I don't know how your storefront backend works, but if it could figure out just like what fits in what boxes, or if you could tell it what fits in one boxes, then you could just have flat rate shipping for certain items up to a certain point and, and keep that like how you're doing with USPS, but for bigger items too. Yeah. Well, I'm, I guess part of what I'm saying is I think I need to move away from the flat rate stuff just because like with a flat rate box, yeah, I can fit one of them into one flat rate box, but then what about two of them? Or what about one of this and one of that? Like it becomes exceedingly complicated to try and fit it. And so I think when you look at like more integrated automated systems, they just go by weight and distance and it's on you to put it in a box that fits. And so then if they get two of this and one of that, or they just get one of this or whatever, it's just calculated by weight and distance. It's a pretty simple calculation. And then your customer gets to choose which carrier they want and they can compare rates themselves. And all that decision-making happens on their end and you just get like a postage label basically. And so I think in order for me to scale my process, I need to stop using flat rate stuff. Even though sometimes if you put in the effort to figure out how it can go, you can save a little bit of money. But yeah, no, that makes total sense. You're looking for automated processes and not for, yeah, you, you want to eliminate your, you from the equation as much as possible. So that makes total sense. Yeah. And with t-shirts, it's even harder. Cause it's like, 
the the dollar value of the product relative to you know the distance that you're trying to move it and it just becomes hard like it is going to double the cost of the shirt for international customers i would imagine a lot of times it it will up to a point like i i looked into it once somebody reached out about that and like you know paying 25 dollars for a 20 dollar t-shirt seems a little <laughs> crazy and then i looked into it and i was like oh well like if i had shipped it myself through usps it would have been like 12 bucks or 13 bucks or something like that. Yeah. Um, which makes a little more sense. Like uh, it still sucks, but like that's just international shipping, but like, you know, paying more than the cost of the product yeah. hurts. And, and I totally understand why that person reached out and like, yeah, you know, it, it, it just is what it is. So, yeah, it's hard. Cause it's like, I relate completely and I, but it's like, there's only so much power you have to do. So you got to look into your options. And then at some point you have to say like, yeah, if I'm going to ship a small, low dollar, lightweight item, across the world, it might cost more for shipping than the product. And yeah. Yeah. So I was looking into, there's a few different fulfillment centers. The one I'm looking into right now is Printful. And so you select like you post all of your products and they have fulfillment centers around the world. And so like even in Europe, the first product ships for $4 or $4.39. Nice. So it, it, as long as, as long as they're near a fulfillment center that they have, or a print fulfillment center, then they it, it's not that bad. And they have the same kind of shirt that I want. And they actually have more options as far as like logo on the sleeve or, you know, inside out label or something like that. So yeah, um, we'll see. I, I got to kind of go in and price everything out and make sure that it all works. But I'd much rather do that and be able to make it easier and cheaper for people to get our, our merch than have it all go through an easier place that charges them an arm and a leg yeah you know for sure i mean and and if you if it's a system decision where you can you can procure this you know option and now people just have it as an option and it's done that's amazing yeah yeah so we'll see i'll keep the the podcast updated on it as i go through it um it's we're at like about the two hour mark now i have a question i could ask you about what you've been working on this week but uh, i don't want to extend this indefinitely if you need to get going oh no i mean i've got one part to make today and or one part number to make today and I've got plenty of time left. So, so tell me about this crazy rush job you were running this week. <laughs> There's not much I can say about it other than it had some pretty tight tolerances and longer cycle times. And again, running at the 41st hour every week means that like I was there till 1am Wednesday and Thursday. And I think I was there till 1030 Monday night as well. And then I have, so I had that rest job that was due, it was supposed to be there Thursday and ended up being there Friday because the second operation on it just gave me fits. It was cutting, you know, some taller wall stuff that was really thin. And I had to find a, a, a tool path that didn't take forever, but also produced the result that I was happy with. Um, and then, so we've got a rush, we had a rush job then. I just shipped another rush, rush job yesterday. I've got one to ship. Well, I was supposed to have two to ship Monday, but the customer was supposed to supply material for one of them and only shipped us half the material. So on one hand, I was like kind of frustrated about it. And on the other hand, I was like, well, it's not on my plate anymore. I can just email them and say, Hey, you need to fix this. And then I'll work on it whenever I get the material. So it took at least one job off my plate, which was nice. So I've got one more to ship Monday. And then I think I've got that whenever that material comes in, I've got that one to do. And then I don't think I'm taking on any more work until the new year because we've got Christmas ornaments that we're making for all our customers. 
I just ordered material for that. I just finished the design for the most part. And so I'm going to start working on those and then take a week off, I think. That's awesome. Yeah. It's always a, it's, it's definitely a time suck every year. And like, we always wait until the last freaking second, of course. Um, Cause like November and December are always my busiest months. I don't know if it's like engineers that realize they have budget left over or if they have deliverables that they need done before the new year or before they go on vacation or what it is. But like every year, this time of year, it is like one rush job after another, just ad nauseum, it seems like. So um, we always wait till like the week before Christmas or like a week and a half before Christmas to start the ornaments. We always try to push the envelope from what we did last year. Like our first year we did them was just a two op, you know, easy engraving on both sides and a a contour. Uh, The second year was 3D machining on both sides. This year it's 3D machining on both sides and a third op and then some assembly. Um, But, you know, it's a fun project to kind of get to play with toolpaths in a way that I normally wouldn't do it for customer orders and push my design skills a little bit and just make something cool. So, yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I, I really, I bought a CNC machine partly just cause I wanted to make cool stuff. And then I started to have some success and I've always identified that for me, it's more important to not go back to work for other people. And so I'm just trying to get my business to a level of maturity and security where I feel like I can, kind of take a breath and it's, I'm getting there for sure. I'm picking up a lot of speed, but it seems like there's always new investments and, and tooling and different things. And so like, you know, anyway, uh, I can't wait until I feel like I've caught my breath enough that I can afford to do those projects where you learn stuff. Uh, I think Jeff Tiedekin was saying once to me, he said, you know, you can be learning or you can be making money. And they're sort of opposed to each other, right? You know, like if you're fiddling with stuff and you're playing around, you're trying to, and anyway, I feel like I just don't give myself enough of the like learning projects. You know, like you're always learning as you're trying to get something going, but it sounds like with the Autodesk Cam Challenge and some of those other things, like you've given yourself opportunities to, to really, um, you know, try to level up and learn things. And then once you have some experience, it's not intimidating and you can work it in while you are trying to make money on a project or something, but you know, for me, like I, I never really dive that much into 3D tool paths until I need something specific done. And then I, I just try to get it done and move on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it definitely is a balance. Like we try not to do, you know, personal projects every month. Um, I mean, I'd love to. I've got a million designs in Fusion that I've been wanting to make for a long time. But uh, yeah, having one at least a year, like the camp challenge or, or ornaments or something like that. You know, it just it's it's like, oh, I wonder how fine a finish I can make on this. And it's like, I'm never going to I'm never going to try to make a four finish 3D surfacing something for a customer because that's just a waste of company time and money. Um, But when it's like there's no there's no risk, like I'm not on a time clock. It's not like, oh, I need to get this order out tomorrow. It's like, well, you know, if I don't ship these ornaments until after the new year, then they're for next year. Like, bummer, (laughs) that kind of thing. You know, I, I I. I want them to be there before Christmas. I want them to be the actual Christmas ornaments, but you know what? It's like, it's, it's just the fun. So it's always nice to have at least one project like that a year. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, uh, like you said, I probably should get to the shop as much as I, uh, enjoy talking to you. Um, I re- I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and taking the time out and, uh, I'd love to have you back on and, you know, a month, month or two and get caught up on where you are. Yeah, hell yeah. Maybe I'll have some feedback about employee hiring and and, uh, having released this new product and all the places those things take me. 
Awesome. Well, thanks again, Joe. Um, everybody, we have we have JSP Fab on the podcast next week, which is uh, John Rusikoff. And I'm looking forward to talking to him. And thanks again, Joe. We'll see you guys next week. Yeah, thank you.